This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Blue Book, the world's most popular internet search engine, processing an average of 94% of all internet search requests. Blue Book, we're interested to see what you'll choose to search. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, it's... Killer Robots on Pod Cemetery with 1991's Terminator 2 Judgment Day and 2014's Ex Machina. Both of them kind of, you know, walking that tightrope of still horror elements to them, but getting the further reaches, I'd say, of the definition of the horror genre, but that's okay. Before we get into the movies, though, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Horror trivia. Give me what you got. What 2000 psychological horror film contains a son that Astral projected into a realm called The Further? What, 2000? 10. Oh, okay. (laughs) What, 2010? That's that's insidious. Yes. I thought you said 2000, but whatever. What What 2000 psychological horror film? Yes, that was easy. Kelsey? Yes. Regarding Terminator 2, when they go to... Enrique Salceda's home, what code name does John give the Terminator? Uncle Bob. Uncle Bob is right. That brings us right into T2 Judgment Day, written by James Cameron and William Wisher, directed by James Cameron, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Linda Hamilton, Edward Furlong, Robert Patrick, and Joe Morton. What is T2 Judgment Day about? Two robots are sent back in time again one is meant to kill john connor and one is meant to save him yes if you listen to our first episode on terminator you know all that story and now john connor is starting to grow up he's been born he's a little kid which one's the good terminator which one's the bad terminator who knows (laughs) it could be either of them (laughs) I I will talk about availability and cost a little bit here, because you know what? It's, like, impossible to find this movie. There is, like, a super ultra cut. The reason is is because there's two different versions, and then there's a third version, which has a completely superfluous extra scene that's just, like, longer time. And, like, it's totally pointless, and they just wanted to make more money off of it. We watched the extended edition, which in some places... Yes, in some places... It is called the director's cut, but that's not what it is. It is the extended version. It adds like an extra half hour. So it's more like uh, two hours and 35 minutes or something like that is how long the longer version is. That's the version we watched. It was called the director's cut on Amazon. So if you want to watch the same one we watched, you can watch that one. You should all own this anyway, I think. Just skipping right to the should people watch T2. Kelsey, what do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely you should. It's a fantastic movie. 
Should they watch? Well, we'll get into it. I was going to ask you if they should watch the theatrical or the extended cut. It depends on who you ask. Some people like the theatrical cut because it's better paced. It doesn't have an extra 30 minutes of fat that could definitely be cut. I'm going to get into the scenes that got cut. But like one or two of these scenes, I can't imagine the movie without it. So that's the struggle of, of which one you you pick as an artifact and knowing as much as you want to about it because you really enjoy the movie and you want more of it. The extended cut. But if you want like the better crafted, like paced film, the theatrical cut, pick your poison. But we'll be talking about the extended cut today. You can take our advice or leave it. But when we get back, we will talk about 1991's Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Jump, 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 jump. Same make. These were taken at the West Highland Police Station, 1984. You were there. Same model. These were taken today. You have to let me see my son. He's in great danger. New mission. He was programmed to destroy the future. You don't know what it's like to try to kill one of these things. Now his mission... Get down! ...is to protect it. Mom! Come with me if you want to live. You're really real. His loyalty is to a child. Who sent you? You did. 35 years from now. And his enemy... He's a Terminator like you, right? Not like me. ...is the deadliest machine ever built. Can it be destroyed? Unknown. This time, there are two. Terminator 2. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Terminator 2. Judgment Day. This time, he's back. For good. Trust me. All right, Kelsey, can you get us started? What happens in T2? We start with what will eventually be a dream sequence, but like, I guess it's supposed to be what actually happened. We see LA traffic, we see kids laughing and on swings, and then we witness the end of the world. And my question was, how did people survive? And Chris's remark was, they wouldn't have bombed the entire country. Well, yeah, they wouldn't have. They wouldn't have bombed the entire world either. And we learn later how they did it. They just set off one set of bombs and they let the world kind of take care of itself. Yeah, they fired on Russia and then Russia re- replied. <laughs> yes, and it just is like a back and forth volley, and it effectively destroyed the world. But we do know, especially from the third movie. If you choose to recognize the third movie as canon. Yes. We do know people go underground. There are contingency plans for, you know, certain classes of people. And who knows how other people like that's a story to be told in those movies, which I'm sure it is. I've only seen Terminator 3 once. Me too. As a matter of fact, yeah, I only saw Terminator 3 once. I only saw four once and I haven't seen five or six. Dark Fate is six. (laughs) And then we get to see after the after effects, we get to see like John and his people and we get some narration from Sarah Connor. 
I gotta say, the narration is a little cheesy. Yeah, but it was there for Terminator One. Yeah, but we could have we could have cut it out. I think here, but there's a filmmaker's philosophy that says if you have to have narration, then your movie doesn't work. <laughs> if you have to outright tell people what's going on, then you didn't do a good enough job writing the movie. I don't necessarily agree with that. I just mean that some of the writing, well, like I said, it's just is a it's little... just a certain point of view. Yeah. From a certain point of view. From a certain point of view. And some of the writing here is just a little corny. And the way she she gives it is a little melodramatic. Totally. Well, she's talking about the end of the world, Kelsey. Yes. She's explaining that John must be saved because he's gonna be the ones that he's gonna be the one that drives the force against the, yeah. the machines in the future. At least in the first one, we had the context of the narration that she's making recordings. Yeah. And, I, and depending on where the narration comes in to play here, I think some of it is her talking to like a therapist or somebody. And then, you know, cause she's institutionalized, we'll find out. Uh, and some of it is making a recording for her son or something like that. There's like context to it, but yeah, it is a little cheesy. So we go to the present time and we get to see a lot of electricity in the air. We get a, a circle of light in a, in a, chain link fence and there is Arnold and he is naked again and he walks into a bar looking for someone whose clothes he can take again and it's fun to see like a lot of the women respond very positively uh -huh. when they see <laughs> naked Arnold walking through it's very uh -huh. funny he comes upon a man and he says the famous line I need your boots I need your, your jacket <laughs> yeah, uh -huh. and your bike I need your clothes your boots and your motorcycle. <laughs> the dude walks up to him and puts out his cigar. And you can just, I mean, obviously the guy does not re react at all to this pain. Right. So as Chris said, why would anyone like go after him? Uh -huh. I agree. But it's a fun sequence. This first guy is visibly scared when he realizes what happened and then he's grabbed before he can do anything. But everyone else. Yes. Attacks him. Yes. He throws that first dude on the, the stovetop in the back, which is really fucking effective. Like I thought the effects department did a really good job of the practical effect there. Agreed, agreed. And he did a great job of like ah, looking like it's burning, trying but he to still get needs off. to push himself off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he ends up taking the guy's clothes and leaves, but as he's about to take the motorcycle, the owner of the bar comes out with a shotgun and he's like, I can't let you take the man's bike. And while this is all playing, while this is all happening, Bad to the Bone is playing. And uh -huh. it's a it's a great scene. It's very well put together. Arnold just walks up to him, takes the gun, and then takes his sunglasses. Yes. The famous sunglasses. Yes. And it's it's all well done and fun. Then we get to see the second Terminator sent back, but this time it's the T-1000. So this is a different look of a model. This is Robert Patrick. He's more lithe and lean. Yes. And he immediately kills a motorcycle cop to take his clothing, which is different from Arnold, because Arnold beats them up. But he is he a motorcycle him. cop? I thought he was. he had a vehicle. 
And yeah, in the beginning, he has a cop car. And then he gets the the motorcycle later when he tells the guy nice bike or whatever. Well, I I immediately wrote down, why wouldn't he take on that guy's visage? Right. Because we will find out if you haven't seen T2 that this one can morph into whatever he wants to. He doesn't need to like wear real clothes or whatever. And we find out that the uniform is morphed, but the face is not. He kept his face. Mm hmm. Which is a little suspect. Right. They should have just made that first cop Robert Patrick. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. And would that would have fixed idea. everything. And just have some rando be the one who appears there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But so the big difference here is he immediately kills the cop, whereas Arnold Schwarzenegger does not kill the people that he takes the clothes from. Yeah. Not that he has any qualms about killing people. It's just unnecessary to draw that sort of attention to him right now. Yes. Yeah. And he, because he has the the cop car, he's able to look up John Connor, yeah. and we find out that he is living with foster parents. Yes. Then we get to meet the foster parents, and we get to meet Edward Furlong, who is fantastic in this role. Kelsey's crush on Edward Furlong started here. Humongous crush. Cannot express how in love I was with Edward Furlong as a young child. Uh-huh. I mean, he's not great in a lot, let's be honest. We saw him recently in... Night of the Demons. Night, the Night of the Demons remake from 2009, yeah. and He didn't look too good. Yeah, but I mean, good for him. I hope he does well. You don't know about his history. He had a he lot of a, run-ins with the law. Yeah, totally. But and it's I mean, because he was domestic violence. Oh, was it? It was for domestic. Oh, violence. I thought it was drugs. Oh, it was drugs too. Definitely <laughs> drugs. Yeah. Okay. Well, get yourself together, Edward Furlong. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully, you are now. Yes. Um, he was also in the Crow sequel. One of the Crow sequels. We'll get there eventually. <laughs> But American History X, of course. Yes, he's fantastic in American History X. That movie is so good. And when you find out that the director hates it, it really bums you out. Yeah. Because it's like that. Sorry, but Edward Norton was apparently right because that movie was awesome. Yeah. But it's so good because the mom yells at Edward Furlong for not cleaning his room and she then yells at her husband and tells him to go and tell Edward Furlong to do it so so he does and it's so great the look that he gives his dad when he says she's not my mom Todd like the look that he gives him <laughs> like is so good he says Todd <laughs> that's also really good yes Kelsey hmm who is the mom I totally recognized her is she the chick from Alien? She's Vasquez from Alien. That's Jeanette Goldstein. Aliens. Aliens, sorry. Which yes. makes sense because Aliens and T2 are done by... James Cameron. Yes. yes. Uh-huh. So, of course, he picks her. I thought it was her, but with the hair, she looks very different. Well, and without the fake tan oh, trying to yes, darken that, her skin. part as well. <laughs> but this is what she actually looks like. So, but after he says, she's not my mom... Then we get a cut to Sarah Connor, who looks fantastic. She looks a little emaciated, but yes, Strong she's in great and she's in hot. excellent shape. Yes. yes. So we get to find out that she has been locked up since the end of Terminator 1. We don't know yet why. But it's the same doctor from Terminator 1. And what did I ask you 
we I think we talked about it when we talked about Terminator One, and I just forgot. I was like, wait a minute, shouldn't he know he was at the he was at the police station? What did you tell me, Kelsey? Very specifically, and we noted this in our first episode. Uh-huh. He does not see him. Yep. Not that it would matter if he had. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously something happened. Well, because later, the cops show up with pictures of the guy. Yeah. And that's not enough for him, either. That's him starting to go, like, okay, there's something going on here. But that's after all the shit that he does. Yes. He explains that, like, he just thinks it's this grand delusion of persecution that she Uh has created for herself. And when he first meets her, and this is kind of important based on the next scene that we get between the two of them, she says, how's the knee? And we find out that she stabbed him in the knee. Well, in the next scene that we see with them, she says, you told me if I was better for six months, I could go to a less security system. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been six months. So is this first scene six months ago? No, because we've already seen John Connor on the day that he runs into the Terminator. So that's a good point. What, maybe it took six months for his knee to heal. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's asking him about how is your knee healing? Oh, I don't know. But after she does that... He then tells the the orderlies uh, to make sure she takes her medication, which you think is going to affect because he, he says the orderly says now you've got to be ready for your review. And the idea is that she's going to be like with the medication. But then we do see her during her review and she's perfectly fine. No, I don't think he's trying to knock her out. I think they're antipsychotics. Oh, yeah. Uh, but they beat her when yes. they get her in there and they electrocute her that is not in the theatrical version. Really? Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen a, a, a version of it without that. You have, every version has that one orderly licking her face. No, but I specifically but remember them beating, them beating her, her with their nightsticks and stuff. Yeah, that's not in the theatrical version. Huh. Well, so the next scene we have is... The new, the T-1000 showing up to, at John Connor's house with his fa- foster parents. And he says, you know, is he here? And they're like, no, he just left. But is there a problem, officer? No, I just need to talk to him. But he asks for a picture of John Connor. Yeah. We also find out that Arnold Schwarzenegger already came by. There was a guy here this morning looking for him, too. Yeah, a big guy on a bike. Has that got something to do with this? No. I wouldn't worry about him. We get to see Edward Furlong, John Connor, with his friend, who we know from Salute Your Shorts. He's Bobby Budnick. He's the bully. Yeah, he was also in uh, Different Strokes before that. But so we get to see that he is stealing money from the bank using this thing that that he will use later. I always just assumed it was real. I have no idea if it really is a real thing. I doubt it would work that way, but we're just supposed to know... That he's lived a rough life because when his buddy asks him about that, he says, oh, my mom taught it to me. Oh, your mom's pretty cool, huh? No, she's not. She's She's a total psycho. Yeah, uh uh-huh. And we're like, oh, we're starting to learn more about their relationship. We find out that the reason she got locked up was because she blew up a computer factory. (laughs) Meanwhile, Sarah is dreaming about Kyle Reese. Yeah, he shows up and, like, encourages her. On your feet, 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 soldier. soldier. (laughs) Which is what she said to him Uh in the first film. Now, Kelsey, believe it or not, 
Kyle Reese, not in the theatrical cut. I think I knew that. I think I knew that this dream sequence was not. They got Michael Bean and he didn't even make it into the movie. That's a crime. I know. That's a crime. But she tells him, I've lost our son. He doesn't even believe me anymore. And he's like, well, you need to remind him that the future is not set. There is no (laughs) fate but what we make ourselves. And she. The message that. Reese came back with from John Connor from the future. This is one of our big sort of like, where does this time loop start? Who came up with it in the first place sort of things. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And he walks away. And in her dream, she runs after him. And when she gets outside of the hospital, she's back at that playground that I told you would come up again that we saw in the first shot. And in her dream, uh, she tries to shout at the mo- at the people that are in the playground, the kids, the parents. Is it here or is it in the beginning where we see her dressed up in her diner waitress's oh, that's outfit? That's not even here. And that okay. wasn't in the first one. And she tries to shout at everyone, but no one can hear her. Uh-huh. And it's very sad. And then there's a there's a light. So there's an explosion, but all it is is just a light. Yes. And then we cut to her being recorded we get to see an old recording of her Mm -hmm. explaining about the dream and she's just like the dream is the same every night why do we have to go over this but they're doing it because we need to see this yeah and it's funny because he's just like you know and and this feels real to you and she goes yeah it's gonna feel real fucking real to you too (laughs) unless you're wearing 3000 spf (laughs) i know the date it happens i'm sure it feels very real to you on August 29th, 1997, it's going to feel pretty fucking real to you, too. Anybody not wearing two million sunblock is going to have a real bad day. Get it? And then we see Sarah Connor today after she, like, is screaming and attacking. You know, uh, you're all dead. Everyone's dead. And they they qu- they stop the film and we get to see her in the present day. And she's just like, I'm much clearer now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And she explains, you know, it helped me to have a goal. You said that I could go to the lower security system. And he's like, I don't buy any of this. I'm going to say that you need another six months here. Yeah. And she, of course, flips out. Yes, because, I mean, her options are, in her mind, get to a lower security facility where she can break out. Or if she can't get that, then she needs to do something else to break out of here. And this is part of that plan. Yes, but one of the things that they he asks her is, I thought you said that they covered it up. You know, when he asks her, where's uh-huh. the chip? And she's like, it doesn't exist. And he's like, but I thought you said that they covered it up. And she goes, no. That's crazy. Why would they do that? Why would they? Yeah. Immediate cut to Miles Dyson. Yeah. And... You really love Miles Dyson, and he gets a rough break in this movie. Yeah, you really do. (laughs) We get to see that he works in a lab and that he is working with the technology that will eventually create Skynet, that will eventually create Terminators. If you listen to our Aliens episode, this is where we get that exchange about the higher-ups telling them, don't ask. That's what happens in the Aliens one, and that scene in Aliens was cut out and put back in for the extended cut there. Uh, but since it what didn't end up in the movie the first time around, he put that same exchange in this movie instead. Yes, and 
this younger guy that works there asks him, where did you find the hand? And uh-huh. we find out that they have the hand. The Terminator's hand. From the first said. film. Oh, I asked him about that. You know what they said? Don't ask. Mm-hmm. Then we get to see John Connor running around on his dirt bike. We see that the T-1000 is hot on, on his trail, and these girls tell him, I think he went to the Galleria. One of those girls is just a brief cameo by a young Nikki Cox. I knew her from Unhappily Ever After, which was this sort of knockoff Married with Children, where the guy sat in the basement and talked to a stuffed rabbit who was played by Bobcat Goldthwaite. Go out and kill six random strangers and this kid. (laughs) They'll be looking for the common link. But there is none, Jack. <laughs> no, nothing. <laughs> no idea what you're talking about. She was like the bombshell daughter. She would go on to have roles in minor television series like uh, Las Vegas, for instance. She was on that show. You know, they made a show called Las Vegas. Yeah. She was in Mac and Me. She was in Moonwalker. Anything. Sorry. <laughs> Just a minor cameo. Oh, yeah, I went. To, I think he went to uh, the arcade at the Galleria. And yes, he is there in the arcade. The T-1000 first encounters the kid from Salute Your Shorts. The cop asks the kid if he knows John Connor, and the kid tells him, no, I don't know him. Oh, he does a really good job of acting like he does. He, he actually grabs the photo, he looks at it, recognizes that it's John, doesn't react, and he's like, no, I don't know him, and hands it back, and then walks away, and then he speeds up. <laughs> yes, and he tells John, so John books it out of there, but it's funny because... Right after he has that encounter with him, the cop talks to a di- another kid, and the kid's like, oh, yeah, he's right there. <laughs> and so the cop, as the cop is going after John, the kid from Salute Your Shorts tries to say, hey, uh, that guy went over there. But as he does, he the cop just pushes him out of the way. The way. Hey! <laughs> and that's the last we'll see of him. Yes, and when John Connor runs out into the hallway of the mall, you know, where you're not supposed to go, where only workers yeah, are supposed hallways, to go, yeah. he sees Arnold Schwarzenegger. And oh, he does, it's this cool thing where he, like, he's carrying a long box of roses to disguise the fact that he has a shotgun. Yes. And he drops the box, and there's actual roses in it. And he steps on the roses uh-huh. as he's walking by. But I gotta say, I love Edward Furlong's look of recognition. Yes. Look Immediately, of he realization. knows exactly what this is. Yes. This is the moment that he realizes his mom was telling the truth. Yes. Everything. And from the other side comes the cop. But what does Arnold say? Get down. Get down. Get down. <laughs> and he immediately starts shooting the other guy. And this is when we get to see what his new ability is. He's liquid metal. Yes. Which is how he gets to morph. So the bullets go through him and he gets these big holes, which slows him down, but not much. Yeah. Which I guess is why they didn't make the cop Robert Patrick just so we didn't know he was actually made of liquid metal until now and he had all these abilities. But... Still, that doesn't make sense. With the storyline. With the story, yeah. yeah. This was the first time, I'm not going to lie, guys, this was the first time that I literally actually thought out loud to myself, oh, wait a minute. He's looking with metal. Where the fuck is his brain? Yes. Where the fuck is his computer? Yes. <laughs> Don't think about it too hard. <laughs> 
It doesn't make any sense. Also, if he's liquid metal, how did he travel through time if it need if he needs to be encased in living flesh? Mm-hmm. I don't know if they answer that in this movie. They might. Because they talk a lot about the technical aspects of it. They talk a lot about how the Terminator is organic flesh surrounding his metal endoskeleton. I don't think James Cameron was too concerned nope. about making that it's make It's just sense. fucking cool. <laughs> exactly. Oh, God, it was so cool. You, <laughs> there were so many, like, news segments and special broadcasts and all this shit about how did they make this happen? And it wasn't the first time it had ever been done but it was like the most impressive use of CG in movies to date. Now, but still, we still haven't seen him as a liquid man. So when he stops, because he and Arnold have this epic fight, when he stops in the middle of a department store and sees a mannequin that's all silver, he kind of gives it a look. Yeah, uh huh. we haven't seen it yet, so we don't know what that looks about. Exactly. Yeah, uh-huh. It's kind of cute. <laughs> so John gets on his dirt bike and... And goes, and this is when we get to see the T-1000 for the first time do his really creepy run. Robert Patrick doing this run is incredible. Yes, apparently he studied, like, cougars and shit like that, and how they move, and how they stalk their prey, and what it looks like when they run, and tried to turn that, like, what would that look like if a human did that? That that was what he was going for. But, oh, it's so fucking creepy, just how how fast they made it look like he runs. Yes. Like, and just how stable and steady he is when he does it. He just looks like he will never stop. Mm -hmm. And it's really fucking cool. It is. It's well done. He can't catch up. So he sees a truck and he (laughs) just walks up to the truck and just pulls the guy out of it. It's very good. And drives after John Connor, who, because he's on his little motorcycle and the other dude's in a big truck, he's like, well, fuck this. And he goes down into... Where the Anaheim River is supposed well, to be, the LA and River, never yeah. actually is. Uh-huh. <laughs> so he goes it's this down. reservoir that's man-made, and it's made to, you know, support rising levels of water coming through it. But it, there's never. If you've seen Greece, that's where the race in Greece was filmed. Yeah. Yes, he goes down there. And we get this awesome shot of the truck just, fuck it, just going down uh-huh. into it over the over the bridge. So unbelievable, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> but they really did throw a fucking truck <laughs> down into this area. It's so fucking cool. <laughs> and it's great because John has stopped because he thinks that he's okay, and he just watches this happen. And again, <laughs> Furlong's face is really good of just yeah. like, oh my god. <laughs> So he's driving away, and this is when you're starting to think, "Uh uh-oh, he's going to catch up now. This is when Arnold shows up on his bike. Yes. And he just picks John up off of his. And that bike promptly is uh, trashed by the the truck. Yeah. Arnold has this epic shotgun, but Chris, please tell us why this would not work. No, it's not that it wouldn't work. It's that it needs to be very specifically modified in order to do that. Like, it it needs to be like a snub nose. It needs to not have the stock on the end of it in order for him not to keep hitting himself repeatedly every time he tries to spin it around. But whenever he shoots him, it's also tightly packed pellets. So that would imply that it actually has a longer barrel. So, eh, whatever. Who cares? (laughs) But it is a very cool effect. Yes. He looks very cool when he swings it around. Oh, it's so cool. (laughs) Also... 
also, when he does his awesome jump with his motorcycle down into the ravine, it's very clearly not Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. <laughs> very much so. <laughs> but it was real. It was a real practical effect. They got somebody to actually and make that jump. And it does look real, but yeah. you just can tell it's not him. <laughs> They didn't flinch. They didn't cut away. They just showed it to you in slow motion. And you're supposed to be so enamored with the fact and it would have been properly set up that you wouldn't even notice it. And he's kind of far away. But now we have these nice TVs. And yeah. Yes. And as the truck is driving after them, the top half of the truck gets pulled off by a bridge. Yep. And he very nonchalantly just pushes the glass out in front of him, which yeah, is a neat shot. There's no way that would have happened. It would have hit that and stopped that truck immediately. <laughs> But they end up somehow crashing him. I don't remember what they do, but it's very obviously a dummy in the crash. Yeah, uh -huh. And then it catches fire. And this is when we get to see well, that they it drive does away, not matter. So they, don't, they don't see this. They drive away, I think. And then, then he comes out of this burning wreckage. Yes. And you can see that it does not matter if you set him on fire. Uh-huh. He's going to be just fine. Yep. He just reforms. But now he's lost them. Yes. So, John ends up telling Arnold, pull over, we need to have a conversation. Because I need to know what the fuck is going on. And Arnold explains that 35 years from now, you reprogram me to come back and save you in this time. The other guy is a liquid metal upgrade from my model. John is like, well, shit, then we'd better go get my mom, because she's going to be in trouble, too. And, and he's like, negative. <laughs> yeah, negative. A, it's not a priority to the mission. And B, that's exactly where the T-1000 is going to go. Yeah. And but, he's like, well, fuck, if the T-1000 is definitely going to go there, then we absolutely have to save my mom. Yes. He also says, I should probably warn our, my foster parents. And the Terminator's like, well, he's probably already seen them. And he's like, well, then I'd better call. <laughs> So he calls them. What do we see, Chris? We see this phone conversation where he's talking to Jeanette Goldstein on the phone. And Todd is <laughs> drinking straight out of the milk carton from the refrigerator. And the dog is the barking. The dog is barking. And Furlong says, there's something going wrong. The dog, I've never heard the dog bark this much. And she's never been this nice before. Yeah. And so the Terminator takes the, the receiver from him. And puts it up to his face, and then out of his mouth comes John Connor's voice. <laughs> and he asks him, what's the name of the dog? Max. And he says, Sharon, is there anything wrong with Wolfie? He's barking so much. Oh, Wolfie's just fine, dear. And then he puts the receiver down and he says, your step-parents are already dead. <laughs> your foster parents your, are dead. Your foster parents, yes. <laughs> and then we cut back and we see that she's already killed Todd. With a pointy finger straight through the milk carton and his face. It's his arm. Oh, it's his whole arm in this one, yeah. The fingers later. But that remark will get the dog killed. Yeah, that happens in the extended cut, not in the theatrical version. Really? He goes back out, he kills the dog, he checks the tag and realizes he's been fucked with. He's been duped. Uh-huh. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the psychiatric center... Sarah Connor is being told by the police that Arnold Schwarzenegger is back and they have pictures of him from the last time he was here. And they're like, Sarah, your son is missing. His foster parents are dead. 
who is this man? Yeah, aren't you upset about this? And she has gone catatonic. Yeah. But as soon as they aren't looking at her, she grabs a paperclip. Mm-hmm. Then we get to see Arnold Schwarzenegger and Edward Furlong having some conversation. I forget why they're just standing there having a conversation. Well, he's trying to convince him to Go and take save him. the mom. Yeah. And so at one point, the Terminator grabs John and lifts him up. And he's like, help, help, this man's attacking me, help. And these two guys start walking over. And he's like, put me down, put me down. And he just drops him, or drop me, drop me, or whatever it is. And he drops him. He says, let me go. That's what it is, yeah. Let me go! And John's like, why did you let me go? And he's like, because you told me to. (laughs) Because you told me to. (laughs) He's like, wait a minute. You have to do what I say? Yes, that's part of my program. (laughs) And he's like, oh, this is awesome. And this is when the guys come up and they're like, hey, what's going on? What are you doing to this kid? And he's like, ah, beat it, bozo. Yes. <laughs> he says. And they're like, dude, what the fuck? You little shithead or dickhead or whatever yeah. they call it, dipshit. It's funny because at this point, Edward Furlong, to prove that Arnold Schwarzenegger has to do whatever he says, has his foot up. <laughs> And oh yes! And for Edward Furlong turns and he's like, "Did you just call moi a dipshit?" And he turns and looks at Arnold, realizes he still has his leg up, and he goes, "Put your leg down, put your leg down." <laughs> it's very funny and no, it's really effective. Their relationship is superb. They did it such is, a good job of this. It is fantastic, which is why the one with Christian Bale is so infuriating because they just disregard this beautiful relationship uh-huh. completely. Yeah. Oh, because he's a bitter soldier by that point, Kelsey. So he tells Arnold Schwarzenegger to fuck with these two guys. And he realizes very quickly that if he does that, Arnold Schwarzenegger will straight up murder Well, he the takes people. his gun out and points it at him. He's like, no! And Arnold immediately stops. And this is when he realizes, no, you're dealing with a Terminator. Right, because he says, you were going to kill him. And he says, yeah, I'm a Terminator. Like, what? Yes, I'm a Terminator. <laughs> Jesus, you're going to kill that guy. Of course, I'm a Terminator. And so he's like, there is a no killing practice from now on. Yeah, he tells him, you can't, you just can't go around killing people. And he goes, why? And he goes, you just can't. You gotta trust me on this. And then he says, I order you to save my mom. So that's what they're so going to go do. now they're going to go do that. We also learn at this time, and we will get further information about it, from poor little John Connor. Yes, he does a lot of whining. He's a teenage boy. Fuck you. Fuck off. So he's talking about how she would go from man to man mm-hmm. and how he, he needed to learn how to be a military leader. Yeah, and he would learn something different from each man that his mom was with. Yes, this is when we get the the face-looking scene, which you might be like, oh, I thought you hated that, Kelsey, because you hated it in Leprechaun 2. Okay, yeah, I'm not a fan of it, but more here, it's not a sexual assault. He's trying to get her to move. He's trying to fuck with her. Yeah, he doesn't believe. He wants, her to, pr- he wants to prove that she's not catatonic. But it, it is also supposed to be gross. Yes, absolutely. So we're okay with her beating the absolute ever-loving shit out of him later. Yes, yes. You do not like this person. No. This is when 
the T-1000 shows up and he's dressed as a cop. And since the cops were there to see Sarah Connor, nobody questions it. And the chick at the, at the front office is like, oh, aren't you a little bit late? Your friends got here like two hours ago. And then they're walking out. She's like, oh, here come your friends now. And he's gone. Mm-hmm. So many twins. So many twins. So many twins. This is our first set of twins here? Yes. Yeah. And it's the security guard. Yeah. He's getting a coffee or a hot chocolate or something from the vending machine. And he's checking. Is this a, like, I'm pretty sure it's still a thing if you go to certain places, certain vending machines still do the poker game or the blackjack game, depending on which cups you get, where you get cards printed on the outside and then your last card is printed on the bottom of the cup separately and so if you get like a winning hand it's just a fun game you play like you know oh does your tootsie pop have the star on it you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. it's just an added thing uh and he's checking that he's looking at it and he doesn't realize that the floor is moving closer to him from behind this checkered floor and up from the floor comes a copy of him and this is his brother in real life Yes. His twin brother. So the T-1000 has copied the security guard. Yes. And when he sees that he had a good hand on his coffee cup, he says, must be my lucky day right before he dies. Yes. But meanwhile, Sarah knocks out one of the security people yeah, when and he comes takes back, the doctor her door hostage. Is open. She has picked the lock or whatever with the... Paper yes, clip. that's right. Yeah, she picks the lock and gets out and sneaks up on the doctor and some orderly. She knocks the orderly out and takes the doctor hostage by taking a syringe and filling it with cleaner fluid. Yeah. A really quick cut here back to Edward Furlong and uh, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, and there's a really fun little conversation here. They're getting into the facility. This is when Edward Furlong makes him swear that he won't kill anybody, that he won't kill anybody. So Arnold, to get them in, attacks the security guard at the at the gate and he shoots him in both kneecaps. And Edward Furlong looks at him incredulously and he goes, he'll live, he'll live, <laughs> he'll live. Such a great line. <laughs> But so back just decapping everybody for the rest of the movie. Anybody yes. has to shoot, which isn't very many people for the rest of the movie, actually. That is correct. But back to Sarah. She's taking the doctor through the facility. He's her way out. And they're all like, oh, we're going to take you down, Sarah. And uh, he's like, I don't think you'd really kill me. And she goes, you're already dead. You know, I believe it. Yeah. And he's like, you're right. Get the fuck down. <laughs> She ends up getting out. She breaks off the key. God, this fucking moment. And then she's so excited. She's free. She's She's running running down down the the hallway. The elevator doors open and out comes the T-800, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And the way she just stops and slips and falls down on the ground and backs up and the look on her fucking face. And And it's all screaming. No, it's really good. And she's running away. And as she's running away, she doesn't see that Edward Furlong comes out of the elevator behind him. He's like, mom, mom, mom. But she doesn't hear any of that. She's panicking and she's running back to the people that she just ran away from. And they tackle her and there's, they, they get her down. They're going to try to give her an injection and up comes Arnold Schwarzenegger and just starts lifting people off of her. Beating the shit out of them. <laughs> Not killing them, but just, just slamming them, them into walls <laughs> and windows and all this shit. And she's just shouting, he'll kill us all. He'll kill us all. <laughs> But then she sees that John's there 
And yeah. he runs up and he's like, Mom. And she's just like, what the hell is going on? And, and he reaches out his hand. And what does he say to her? Come with me if you want to live. Perfect. Come with me if you want to live. Perfect. Very good. Very good. And that's when she finally sees... The T-1000 coming from the other way. Who melts through the... The bars. The bars. Yeah. And it's great because the doctor sees all of this uh-huh. <laughs> and is finally confronted with the fact that he is a bastard. <laughs> that it's all real. The Of course, the gun... Gets temporarily stuck like a dog carrying a big stick trying to go through a doorway. Clinks <laughs> as he goes through. Arnold goes, go. And they run into the into the elevator. The T-1000 runs after them, jumps down. It's a fun little whoop. Yeah, he just throws his arms up that they're turned into these sort of like Jaws of Life thing. It just hops down. <laughs> Fucking love that every single time. Oh, the way that... When he's getting shot, Arnold Schwarzenegger's running down the hall. Yes. He's just got this little jog as yes. he's getting shot in the back. Oh, yeah. it's so good. It's really, really good, guys. And when he jumps on top of the elevator, Arnold Schwarzenegger grabs him. Get down. <laughs> apparently, apparently, between takes, Linda Hamilton forgot to put her earplugs in. And according to James Cameron, has permanent hearing damage. From doing that scene with all the guns going off in that closed space. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. She goes, what the fuck is it? What the fuck is going on? But immediately she jumps into soldier mode. Yeah. And starts shooting. And so does John. Yeah. And she gets John to start reloading. Mm-hmm. They get out of the elevator into the parking structure and they take a cop car. So we get another chase scene here. He's running after them. He latches onto the back of the car. Yes, Arnold does the shoots behind the back without even looking behind Uh him. But they eventually, they get him off of the car. And it forces John to... Like knock a little piece of him off of it too. Yes. And this is like one of the worst effects in this film is the green screen for driving here. Yes, there's a couple of scenes, especially when Arnold Schwarzenegger is hanging out of a vehicle and shooting, where it's obvious that they're not actually driving. Like, weirdly obvious. uh Part of that probably has to do with the Blu-ray restoration. Like 50s moving of a car, almost. uh It's almost like rear projection or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's funny because John will comment on... Can he see anything? And he goes, I see everything. Because they're driving at night and they have no headlights or whatever. And when we see what he sees, it's just so funny what they thought it would look like. Oh, it's just all red tone, but he doesn't need any light. So it's all monochromatic, but yeah, he can see everything. Sarah will go to what looks like hug her son, but in fact, she's just checking for injuries, even though she already asked him, are you okay? And he said he was. And he's upset because he thought that she was hugging him because she missed him. It's really fast and they do not dwell on it, but it's emblematic of their relationship. How she has been trying to raise a soldier who's going to defend the human race and how preoccupied she was with that, that she forgot to be a mom to him. Mm -hmm. Yes, And we get all of that in this one moment. Yes. When she asks him, why did you come back to this place? He's like, well, I had to save you. And she's just like, I can take care of myself. I didn't need you to come back. You're too important to risk yourself. And he starts to cry. And the Terminator says, what's wrong with your eyes? (laughs) He has this huge database full of information, which they reference multiple times. And he does not know what tears are. 
But we get a funny little line of Linda Hamilton finally looking at him and just being like, so what's your story? (laughs) (laughs) They talk about his reprogramming and they ask if he can, I forget what the context is, but they ask if he can learn anything new with his fancy brain of his. And he explains, well, they turn that off whenever they send you on a mission. It's to prevent you from not completing your mission because you learn something else or whatever. And that's what she, that's what Linda Hamilton says. She goes, they don't, they didn't want you thinking too much, did they? Yeah. Now, in the theatrical version, John asks him if he can learn anything new. And he says that, yes, he was programmed with that ability. And that's it. We do not get everything that comes after it, which is one probably one of the biggest changes between the theatrical and the extended edition, the where scene they actually where open he, his head. That's and then, not in the original theatrical? Nope, he's deactivated. John and Sarah have an argument over whether they should destroy him, and Sarah ends up acquiescing to John's wishes so he can be a leader and make decisions for himself. None of that is in the theatrical version. That's shitty. Yeah. That's, That's really insane. Shitty. One of the primary reasons you should watch the extended cut is because, yeah, it's longer. It's not as well paced, but there's important stuff in there. And it's a cool scene. Uh-huh. It is very cool. I mean, two. More the, twins. More twins. Two of the biggest things, like w- the biggest scenes I remember from mm-hmm. like based on special effects from the first film. It's when he fixes his eye. Uh huh. And this one is when they take it's, it out. Yes, it's that's that's another thing. It calls back to the first movie. It rhymes. <laughs> it rhymes. Again, it's like poetry. So if they rhyme. But anyway, yes, they decide they are going to turn on his learning capabilities. So they find like an abandoned house or something like that, and we get this awesome moment that uses rest in peace Linda Hamilton's sister, who actually just recently passed away, Leslie Hamilton Guerin who looks, obviously, they're twins. They look a lot alike. And so in on our side of the mirror... We see Linda Hamilton on this side, as well as Edward Furlong. But it's not Arnold, because Arnold is yeah, in the Yeah, we get the fake head that Edward Furlong and Linda Hamilton are... Edward Furlong's holding a light. Linda Hamilton is peeling back his skull and pulling the thing out. It's just a prop. But on the other side is actual Arnold Schwarzenegger... There's no actual mirror there. Linda Hamilton's twin sister and a woman standing in for <laughs> John Connor, I That's think. That's right. Because, well, his stunt person was a woman. I don't know if they stand used Stand-in. St- it was a stand-in. Oh, stand-in. I, nah, I don't know if that's the same thing. I imagine that her his stand-in would be the one they would use. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? I don't know. But someone else. It's prob- Somebody knows. It's probably in the trivia. It's not that important. But it's a great like practical effect it's they, very the well fact done. that they did that practically and it all relied on the fact that linda hamilton's a twin <laughs> <laughs> so yeah when when they pull the chip out they have to reset it furlong of course is all for it and of course linda hamilton just wants to smash it because he's, well he's deactivated this is our chance to destroy him and she goes to do that with a hammer And they get into an argument. She's like, you can't trust him. You don't know what they did. You don't know what they do. You don't know what he's capable of. And he's like, hey, if I'm supposed to be this big military leader, when do I get to start making decisions? When do we get to start trusting my decision-making capability? Which, again, is why the one with Christian Bale is so maddening. Yeah. uh (laughs) Because he's the one that's like, let's kill this thing. 
I get it that it's supposed to be it's been so long and he's hardened or whatever. But like, then what the fuck was the point of this movie? Yeah, if exactly. it's not going to contribute to his character later on down the road. Exactly. I mean, come on. That movie um, just completely disregards right. T2, which is absurd because T2 is the best film of the franchise. Disagree, but it is <laughs> incredible and I can't believe they would disregard it. Mm-hmm. And so she ends up slamming the hammer down on the table next to the chip, but not actually destroying the chip. And says, we'll play it your way. Yeah. Also, guys, we got a teeny tiny clip in the middle here somewhere where the T-1000 got his bike and he has the famous line, Say, that's a nice bike. (laughs) Say, that's a nice bike. So the next day they are headed south and when they steal the car... This is your first lesson. (laughs) teaches him that people keep their keys in their car, which never made sense to me. Well, now it doesn't make sense, but I mean, I... I told you about this. My grandfather, living in a very, very small town, my the hometown where I was born, very, very small coastal town in Northern California, he would go to the store and he would leave the keys in the ignition to his truck. And this was an ignition that if you turned it all the way back, it didn't actually drain the battery at all. And he would just leave them in his truck and leave the truck unlocked and go into the store and do whatever he had to do. That was just a thing you did. Nobody locked their front doors until serial killers started going around. You know what I mean? Like, that's just the way things were. And some cars, you might still find their keys in the car. Well, so they are headed south. They're headed towards Enrique's compound. And this is when we get the fun scene of Furlong teaching him 90s slang. Well, his first lesson is look... Above the sun visor, when you're trying to steal a car, there might be a key there. That's his first lesson. This is going to be his second lesson, which is, you know, how do you handle yourself? How do you be cool? 90s slang. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, he teaches him a couple things. You don't say affirmative. You say, no problemo. And if somebody's hassling, you say, eat me. Um, and, you know, you can put them together. Eat me, dickhead, or whatever. Yeah, uh-huh. And he teaches him hasta la vista, baby. And he teaches him a couple of other things. He uses the term shine them on, which I do not believe a kid his age in 1991 <laughs> would ever say. <laughs> James Cameron's age shining through in this script. Oh, well, he didn't write it, did he? Yeah. He wrote it? Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. He wrote it with William Wisher, yeah. They get somewhere, they're getting food, and this is when Edward Furlong teaches him how to smile. The best jiffable moment in the entire movie is Arnold Schwarzenegger as the T-800 trying to smile, and he does this teeth-tightening thing, and John is like, you'll get it. (laughs) Not in the theatrical cut. That's not in the theatrical cut. I guess I just only ever saw the extended version. Or you've seen the extended version so much since then that it's kind of replaced all your memories of the first one. I guess that'd be my guess. And while they're having this conversation, they will see these two little boys shooting shiny toy guns at each other. That's when Furlong makes the insightful comment of, we're not going to make it, are we? Arnold says, it's in your nature to destroy yourselves. (laughs) Oh, man's greatest threat is himself. (laughs) This is when he explains that once Skynet becomes self-aware, they attack Russia, who then attack us. They get back in the car, they're going to drive away, 
and they ask him about Dyson, and he goes, I have detailed files. Yes, that's his <laughs> one of his taglines in this movie. They, that was what they said uh, when they were first taking apart his head, too, I think. He mentioned that he has detailed files of well, human also anatomy. Also on human anatomy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Makes you a better killer. Uh-huh. But again, doesn't know how crying works. How detailed could his files be if they don't have tear ducts there? But again, guys, the moment Dyson's name is mentioned, cut to Dyson. Yes, not in a theatrical cut. This the first time where we get introduced son? to the family, yeah, uh-huh, not in the theatrical. Cut. I mean, I guess it's not. It's with his wife because he's. Well, take, and his son's outside. Yeah, he's gonna uh-huh. take his kids to Raging Waters, and she's <laughs> obs- she's upset that he's obsessed with his work. Uh, but we learn a lot about. You know what's happening, and we see and a large version of the character. Chip. Yes, totally. Like I said, you really, really, really like Dyson in this movie. Yes, he's a great. He's 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 a hard worker, but he's a great guy, and he's the reason why humanity destroys itself. <laughs> but also, so she's making him feel guilty for not hanging out with his kids, and so he finally decides. You know what? You're right. I will go and hang out with my kids. And what does he do? He just turns the fucking computer off in the middle of coding. Like in 1991, that's not that shit's not saved to the cloud, motherfucker. Yeah, that is gone. <laughs> All that work is gone. It's one thing to be like, okay, I'm spending too much time coding. I should probably spend time with my family. It's different to not save before you quit. Yes, but he's trying to prove to his family, I'm here. I'm with you. Fuck! I remember being freaked out when you put in a floppy disk and like not making sure that you hit like the eject button before oh. you took it off because everything could be could uh-huh. be deleted. And this is when Sarah Connor and friends show up to Enrique's compound. And we get the Uncle Bob moment. Yes. Sure, Uncle Bob. <laughs> you're pretty jumpy, Connor. <laughs> it too. We've got, they've got a history. They're <laughs> friends. But it's funny. Arnold will pick up a kid. Yeah, he just grabs him, just <laughs> stares at him. <laughs> And then they're told that they're on weapons detail. And this is where we get more information from poor whiny John Connor about his upbringing and how his mom always fucked mm-hmm. it up. Even when she found a guy that, like, he really liked, she'd tell him about Reese and the war uh-huh. and she'd be out on her ass. But th- there is one guy when they're working on the car that That's he tells what him. That's talking about. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the one guy he really liked actually taught him how to work on cars which he really liked. And so, you know, he didn't have a dad. And so he had these surrogate dads that were always assholes that Sarah was just using to teach him what they needed to teach him. And yeah, it's a really shit life he had. It's pretty funny because earlier we saw that he was really good at video games. And when he says that he found out that nobody else was being brought up to believe in any of this stuff, he's like, the other kids were into Nintendo. Yeah. (laughs) Meanwhile, the first time we see him do anything after it's working on his bike, he's playing Afterburner in the arcade. Yes. He picks up a minigun, I guess, and he turns and looks at Furlong, and Furlong goes, That's definitely you. (laughs) And he gives this great smile, Arnold does. So he's learned how to smile at Uh this point, so it sucks that they took that part out. Well, they might, I don't know if they took that, that smile out here, too. No, but I'm saying yeah. earlier he didn't no, know how to moment. smile, yeah. and he's uh-huh. clearly learned since then. Mm-hmm. And this is when Edward Furlong is teaching Arnold how to do high fives. And we then get to see it from Sarah's perspective. And we get her narration again. We get some more narration, and it's pretty funny because her narration is like, 
It would always be there. It would never hit him. It would never fu- be too busy with work to play uh-huh. with him. It in a way, he's like the perfect him. dad. Yeah. In, in an insane world, it's the sanest choice. And you're just like, oh no, Lyndall Hamilton. But again, he's probably getting more emotionally out of this Terminator than he is from any of the other dads he had growing up. Yes. And she will fall asleep here and have the, the same dream again. This time is when she sees herself she's dressed up with her son. She's dressed up in her diner uniform. Same her hair is like the first one. Yeah, same hair. Yeah, exactly. It looks it's a really good de-aging of her because they didn't really need to de-age her very much. And yeah, that kid playing young John Connor is actually her real son. Oh. Yeah, isn't that sweet? That's cute. <laughs> I thought it was the same kid that Arnold picked up. Oh no. <laughs> And then the bomb goes off and we see more of it this time. And this is the famous scene where as she's shaking on the chain link fence, trying to warn everybody, it goes off and then it turns her into a skeleton just and hanging on the fence. she's burning alive, yeah, uh-huh. screaming. And the cities are decimated. Uh-huh. And then her skeleton is all that's left. And then... Wake up. And she's like, oh, God! Yes, wake up. She's carving into a table. No fate. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so then... She goes and gets all militaried out. Oh, okay. You know what? She looks incredible here (laughs) with those fucking sunglasses and that hat. And she's wearing this like sleeveless top. And James Cameron has a thing for these like live muscular women. Yes. Obviously. (laughs) And so she leaves and Edward Furlong sees that she wrote into the, she carved into the table, no fate. And he's like, no fate, but what we make. I made her memorize that. She's going to blow him away. Yeah. <laughs> they figure it out together. John and the Terminator. She, he's like, she's trying to change the future. <laughs> no fate but what we make. My father told her this. I mean, I made her memorize it up in the future as a message to her. Never mind. Now, okay, the whole thing goes. The future's not set. There's no fate but what we make for ourselves. She intends to change the future. Yeah, I guess. Oh, shit! Dyson. Yeah, gotta be. Miles Dyson! She's gonna blow him away! It's really cute. Yes, he's go- she is going to kill Miles Dyson. And Arnold's like, why do you want me to stop? This could end the war. And Furlong's like, haven't you figured out that you just can't go around killing people yet? Mm -hmm. Clearly he has not. And uh, he he tells him, you've got to learn this stuff. I'm not kidding. It's important. (laughs) So cute. I fucking love him. So Linda Hamilton tries to shoot Miles Dyson, but while he's working at his computer, his son's car his son's little uh, rc car yeah hits him it's an annoyance him, in that moment but yes causes him to bend down so she ends up shooting the computer instead yeah which obviously alerts him to the fact that he is in danger she's then forced to run in and try and shoot him inside the house and he's just begging for his she life she does hit him like in the side uh-huh but the son jumps on him and says don't hurt my daddy and that's what stops her from shooting him again. Yeah. She's softened since she's seen her son. 
Yes. And I just, I love this scene because Linda Hamilton is struggling with her own, like, desire to shoot him, but also knowing that this guy has no idea what he's yeah, even uh -huh. being shot for. And she's trying to be tough and she has been tough. She's built herself up to be tough since the first movie. And I think she, when faced with this moment, she realizes that maybe... She's not as tough as she thought she was. She's not as heartless as she thought she was. Meanwhile, the family is just staring Watching at this crazy white Watching her, like, break down. That broke <laughs> into their house for no good reason. Just screaming and saying, I'm not going to let you do it. Ready uh -huh. to shoot him. And they're just like, what is happening? Arnold and Furlong show up. He rips the door open. They take her off of him. They're still just like, what's happening? And John's calming her down. He's just like, we'll figure something out. I promise, Mom. And she does. this is when she says, I love you, John. I always have. Yeah. So starting to get the actual motherly love here. Meanwhile, John tells Arnold to show him. Yes. Show him. Gives and hands him, him a, knife. a knife. Yeah. And then he goes to the kid and he's like, hey, Danny, come and show me your room. Which... It's hard to believe because the kid is in such trauma. Yeah. Like, I don't think that the kid would be willing to leave his dad. Yeah. But it's an easy way to get him out of the fucking room. Yeah, and it shows that John actually cares about people. Yes. And Arnold cuts open his arm. And just rips off everything from the middle of his forearm down to his fingertips, all the skin off, exposing the hand, the hand that Miles Dyson has seen before. Yes. And so that's how he proves that, yes, I am one of those robots that you're working on. I have that same processor that you've been trying to replicate. I am from the future. Time travel is real. You're responsible for the death of almost all of humanity. <laughs> he takes it kind of well, considering. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what Linda Hamilton says after they've told him. She goes, he took it rather well. <laughs> and he goes, I feel like I'm going to throw up. <laughs> And it's really funny because they're talking about the various things that Dyson has been doing. And he's he's kind of get he gets a little bit excited and he's just like, you know, we were creating things. We were developing new things. And she goes and Linda Hamilton goes, men, you don't know what it's like oh, right. to create a life, to feel it growing, growing inside, inside you. <laughs> and I love Furlong. He's just like, mom, <laughs> can we be a little more constructive here, please? It's so good. Uh -huh. It is so good. These little moments of humor. Bringing in the teenage factor. Just did a lot. It can ruin a movie. It br it but they brought did a really humanity good job to yes. it all. Uh -huh. It brought reality to mm -hmm. it. And it made it, it made it wholesome. Yeah. Something that the first film, not that the first film needed that because that wasn't what the first film was about, but here it really helped make the film not just feel like an action packed robot movie. Yeah. So then he says, well, I'll just quit. And that's when Arnold Schwarzenegger says, but no one can follow your work. <laughs> but he immediately is like, oh, this is what happens. Well, I can't fucking do it. I'm going to quit. Like, uh, they're just going to continue working on it. We have to destroy it. We have to destroy everything. And this is when Linda Hamilton finds out that Dyson has been using that arm. And yes. she's just like, those motherfuckers. <laughs> they did take it. <laughs> they are using it. There is a reason. Mm -hmm. Son of a bitch. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so they make a plan to infiltrate Cyberdyne. When? Tonight. Now. <laughs> now. Yes. 
So they go to the building. They have to lock up uh, the security guard, which will eventually be their downfall. And meanwhile, they go upstairs. They're destroying all the files. John sees that the feds show up. That's when Arnold says, okay, I'll take care of the police. And that's when Furlong is like, hey, but you swore. And for, and and what does Arnold say? Trust me. And he gets them running with his minigun, but he doesn't actually shoot anybody. Yeah. there There is a moment in here when they're destroying everything where Dyson and the Terminator are kind of like doing it together. I, I think it might be the scene when he asks for the axe and, and Dyson takes the axe from the Terminator and they're kind of like working together in this moment. Mm-hmm. Not in the theatrical version. Really? Yeah. So they just cut most mm-hmm. of Dyson's character out. Yeah. There's a conversation where John asks the Terminator, aren't you afraid of dying? And he says, no, you know, of course not. I'm a robot. I'm programmed to do my mission. You know? <laughs> That's not in the theatrical version either. That's a really good moment, too. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all the stuff that got cut for the theatrical version. There is, I mentioned earlier, there's an ultimate cut, and I'll get to what's in that one at the end. Did we not watch the ultimate We did not cut? watch the ultimate cut. It's okay. Trust me. Trust me. But unfortunately, during all the hullabaloo, the cops get in. Of course they do. And poor Dyson gets shot. Yeah, and he has this fantastic moment where he's dying, and so he's, like, hyperventilating, and he has the detonator, and he's holding a flashlight, I think, above the detonator or something like that. He's holding something heavy over the detonator, and he's like, you guys had better go. I don't think I could hold on to this much longer. And so they're like, oh, get out, go, go, go. Yeah, I love the look on the cop's face. He's looking at Dyson trying to figure out what's happening. Dyson Mm -hmm. explains, and he's just like, Go! <laughs> now, Joe Morton does such a fantastic job. Him hyperventilating is just ingrained in my brain. Yes. It's it like, ugh. that's all I think of whenever I see him in anything else. I, yeah. I, 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 I don't know how long I can hold this any longer. Yeah, there's no way he didn't fucking pass out after doing multiple takes of this. Like, he, it's, it's awesome. And the one problem I have with this scene is that we get to see him die in a really cool way where his hyperventilating starts to slow and then stop and he stops breathing. And that's when he drops this thing on the detonator. But the problem is, is he's holding his arm out with something heavy in it over the top of the detonator. He would have dropped that long before he died. He would have died in the explosion in actuality. It's nice to think that, you know. He, he did pe- die in the explosion. No, he dies. <laughs> oh. <laughs> And then he drops it. But his strength would have given out. Hold like hold something heavy in your arm out in front of you. You can't do that living too long. And yet it takes him fully dying before it drops. But I guess that's just his willpower, man. Exactly. But Joe Morton, great job to you, Joe Morton. You have done a performance that is forever in my mind. Yes, he did a great job. But so Linda Hamilton gets caught in like the clean room or whatever. And John's like, there's no way out of there. And, <laughs> and Arnold just punches just through the wall. Burst right through the wall <laughs> like the Kool-Aid man. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Meanwhile, outside, there's a helicopter who has a fun line. It's like, we got a whole war zone going on <laughs> down there. And this is when we see... 
the T-1000 show up on his bike. Uh-huh. Through the smoke. <laughs> yes. And as he's driving by all the wreckage, he looks out at the fires and we see the fires in his glasses. And it was very reminiscent of Planet Terror. But no, I still don't think that's what I was thinking of when I saw her do it in Planet Terror. And again, no one has reached out. If anyone knows what movie I'm talking about with a hot chick looking at fire in her glasses, I would really appreciate it if you would <laughs> let me know. But I do not think it's T2. No. But it does happen Robert here. Patrick... It totally happens. It's not a hot chick. No. But this is when... So Arnold is going to, again, take care of the police. He's got his thing, the grenade launcher. Thunk. Yeah. Thunk. 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 But this is when he says, I'll be back. Yes. Uh-huh. But he says it quick. It's kind of a passing moment. Yes. Yeah. He just I'll says, be I'll be They don't stop the whole fucking movie for him to say it, which is good, I think. It would have been a little bit cheesy if they had. I'm just surprised. It, it's very much a throwaway line. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, it could have been a little bit more... Well, uh, yeah, I think defined. Come, I think come with me if you want to live was a little bit more defined than this was. Yes. Which is insane because I think we talked about it in the first one. They didn't know that I'll be back was going to be like this really big thing. And it was. So the fact that it's just kind of a throwaway line in the sequel is a surprising amount of restraint yes. on their part. Agreed. Stay here. I'll be back. But yes, he walks out into all these cops and kneecaps them all. Yes. <laughs> And then what does he do? He finds the keys of the SWAT truck in the visor. The same way that Furlong taught him how to. Yep. He's learning. He's learning. Mm -hmm. And he starts the SWAT truck. He crashes it through the glass front door and then spins out in such a way that the back is open to the hallway that they were stuck in. Meanwhile, we didn't talk about this, but they're. They're swapping gas masks because the elevator is full of gas. And so they're taking turns, holding their breath and shutting their eyes the whole time to breathe through the gas mask. And then they hop in the truck and they drive away through all the wreckage. So what does the T-1000 do to catch them? Drive his motorcycle out and then jump from the motorcycle yes, he, onto the he helicopter. drove his motorcycle up the stairs for no good goddamn reason, looking for them. He missed them already. And when he sees them drive away, he rams out through the, the window and right into the helicopter, smashing the helicopter window and glooping right through and telling the pilot to get out yeah and so eventually when the pilot knows he means business jumps right out but that moment of his face going through and it turning back into the cop's face with the helmet and all that is very reminiscent of the abyss which is another james cameron movie that has a similar effect in it yep james cameron likes certain things yeah he really does and the abyss is a, all happens underwater, like the Titanic. Like, yes, he he's nothing if not predictable. <laughs> so, they, yeah, there's this whole chase with this helicopter. Another chase scene. Uh-huh, going under overpasses and, you and everything. And you'd think that you'd get sick of them, but they, I think they space them out enough that it doesn't. I know it sounds like there's a lot of mm-hmm. chases, but like. But these chases are where the horror elements really come in for this movie. Yes, and we haven't even talked about the soundtrack. Oh, yeah. The soundtrack really adds to all of these chase scenes. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> 
It's very, it, it, it's very shrill and it's very scary and it's very suspenseful. And again, the fact that they they pace them out, it's not like it's just chase after chase after chase. They they space them out, and they put them in different vehicles every time. Did you notice that too? We get motorcycles, we get cars, we get trucks, helicopters, we, we get helicopters, yeah, uh-huh. we get freeways, we get ravines. It's not all the same thing over mm-hmm. and over again. This music, by the way. Composed by Brad Fidel again, just like the first one. And True Lies. And Johnny Mnemonic. <laughs> but during the sequence, during this chase scene, Linda Hamilton ends up getting shot. Yes, in the leg. Yes. She does this cool thing where she puts all these bulletproof... She First, she puts John in a bulletproof vest and then buries him in bulletproof vest and is like, do not throw these off of you, do not come out from under these, and then puts bulletproof vests, because obviously they're in a SWAT van again, right? And then puts them in front of the the windows so they can't be shot through, and that's what she uses to fire back on the helicopter. But yes, she does get shot in the leg. John makes her a tourniquet. I think so. Yeah. He's going after them in the helicopter, but he ends up, I guess, probably destroying the helicopter because he ends up getting into a liquid nitrogen truck. Yes. That just um, happens to be on the street. They get into like you know a gardener's pickup yes, truck. This is the this is the vehicle's top speed. <laughs> this is another chase scene, but this scene is going to be important because the liquid nitrogen is going to play an, an element here. So now he's driving after him in this truck, and Arnold realizes that he can't get him to stop. So what does Arnold do? Oh, it's this great moment. He he makes John take over driving. And he climbs out onto the back of the truck and he just jumps onto the hood of this 18 wheeler or whatever it is and kneels down on one knee and grabs the, the front up top where the lights are and then has his machine gun down by his side, just <laughs> fires right into the fucking driver's seat. It's just such an iconic motion that he makes and stance that he takes as he fires into and the front seat of his car. And just wails onto yeah. the T-1000. Yeah. They end up crashing into the entrance to this some refinery. Kind of fact. Oh, a it's refinery. A refinery. Yeah. Where so. there's, of course, just molten fire everywhere. S- steel, molten steel everywhere. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the, the, the workers see this. They're like, get oh, out of here. Uh-huh. I just love that they constantly are making people just be like, oh, my God, get the fuck out of here. Fuck, we're all dead. Get the fuck out. But the truck crashes and it's filled with liquid nitrogen which would be great if they weren't also in a refinery yes the t-1000 climbs out of the truck and he's getting all wet and as he's walking his legs are like starting to freeze and then he breaks the legs and starts to walk forward and then you know he just keeps breaking apart until suddenly he just freezes entirely because of this liquid nitrogen at which point arnold schwarzenegger pulls out his handgun says Hasta la vista, baby. Hasta la vista, baby. Which was the takeaway line from this movie, just like I'll Be Back was from the first one. Yes. And shoots him and shatters him, which was not a good move. Which is not a good move. And it doesn't, it's not, this is not the climax. Yes. So I find it funny that that line, like, was so enormous. It was enormous. Yes. 
Well, it's not the climax. It was in the marketing. I remember specifically in the trailers, he would say hasta la vista, baby, and fire his handgun. We'd see that. And then it cut to Cyberdyne exploding. And it's like, he didn't do that with his handgun. <laughs> it was in the trailer every time. Because <laughs> they didn't want to show, obviously, the, the liquid metal frozen T-1000 shattering into a million little pieces. But, of course, they're in a refinery with all this molten metal and... It so just it heats up and it and he melts and then he turns into this is obviously like some mercury that they're moving around using gravity and it, you know, globs onto itself. And it's kind of a cool effect having him all come back together. But now he's kind of fucking glitched and he'll start like sticking to things when he shouldn't be. And um, his his texture and color will change to match Take whatever he's touching. Shapes and yeah. stuff like that. So they're running through the refinery trying to get away from him. And. Arnold Schwarzenegger sends them on and like all take care of him and they get into another fight, which is incredible. And Robert Patrick beats the ever loving shit out of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like just he rams this eye beam into his head over and over and over and, and over loses again. One of his arms. This is how he gets the um, the iconic sort of uh, half robot face with the red eye that we see all the time. Mm -hmm. um, he never goes full endoskeleton like he did in the first one, mm -hmm. which was so iconic. We just get, because he's supposed to be more human now, the half human, half Arnold Schwarzenegger, half robot look. And it's fantastic because he gets his face smashed over and over and over again. And yes, yes his arm is caught in this gear. And when the T-1000 just leaves him there, he... Snaps his arm off. He breaks his own arm off and comes after him. Which doesn't make any sense why the T-1000 wouldn't have thought he would do that. Right. So then he tries to really kill him here. And they, they fight again. This is where all the smashing happens. As Arnold is reaching out, he's crawling across the ground. He's totally fucked up. He only has one arm. He's just trying to get to this ledge so he can reach his grenade launcher, which he just reloaded. The sequence of like... In this action-packed movie, you know exactly what's happening. During the chase, he's trying to reload the grenade launcher with his last grenade. They get rammed by the liquid nitrogen truck. The grenade falls out into the bed of the pickup truck. Later on, once, they're, once they get to this refinery, he finds that grenade in the bed of the truck and makes a point to pick it back up. And we see all of this and it's really fast. They don't waste any time on it, but it tells this story of this grenade launcher that he really <laughs> wants to get to. And he tries to get to it, but he can't before Robert Patrick, the T-1000 just impales them, him with this pole through the floor and he goes dark. And now Robert Patrick is going after this limping Linda Hamilton and John Connor. Now, what he does here is unbelievable. First, as he's approaching them, Sarah sends John Connor down this conveyor belt on his own because she's going to try to delay him and kill him with her shotgun that she has, which is a different shotgun. It's a pump action. What he does is he does the finger thing through her shoulder. Which has already been hurt. Yes. And says, call out to him. Which doesn't make sense. Because we know he can change his voice. Yes, he can change his voice. He can change his He does message. it later on yeah. when this doesn't work. Why wouldn't he just kill her now? Right. Because they need. she needs to be alive. Yes. We can't kill Sarah Connor. Yeah. But they do in the third one. Yeah, that's a good point. They kill her off screen because she didn't want to do it. Yeah. 
She was like, I did not like getting in shape for the second one. And I don't want to get in shape for the third one. <laughs> so what does he actually do to her? We see, okay, so we get a cut to Arnold coming back online. And in that cut, I don't think they show us what happens because the That's next what I'm saying. scene yeah. is Linda Hamilton calling out for John Connor, which is so much bullshit. Because John knows his mom at this point. Right. We didn't get that moment because John sees that the T-1000 is glitching and that's how he tells the difference. Hate that. Hate that that's in the movie. Right. It would have been much more effective if he knew his mom. Yes. Somehow him, his love for his mom and his mom's love for him played a factor in deciding which one was the real one. Would he really think that his mom is the weak one whining, calling out for her son, and yet the other one who tells him, get out of the way, that's uh not his mom? He has to see that Linda Hamilton's feet are the same color as the floor? That was bullshit. I didn't like that at all. I I forgot that that's even, I forgot that that was included here. Because John should know his mother, and should know when he sees the strong one, that's my mom. Yeah. And so he tells his mom to actually shoot him and he gets out of the way and she shoots the shotgun right into his head. Right. And it like splits his head open. But then he morphs right back and she's like, oh, fuck, I just can't stop this guy. That's when Arnold comes up. Yes. He comes up on this conveyor belt holding. Yes. He's laying there. He comes up on it. And he's got his grenade launcher (laughs) and he fires it. Thoom. Right into the center uh, because he's just going to like let it come in like just like any bullet. He wouldn't care, but it gets stuck in him and then just explodes. And this is a really cool. I think I don't know if it's all practical or mostly practical, but this it's this weird sort of twisted body. The thing. Yeah, very, very much like the thing. Yeah. And he ends up falling into the molten metal pool that's below them. And he freaks out. It's obviously just yellow, orangish yellow lighted water, you know, because it's just splashing around. You can tell. And a couple of the characters that he impersonated get a little additional screen time. They get paid for an extra day because he transforms into them as he's dying until ultimately he gets completely melted down. John helps Arnold Schwarzenegger back up and he is totally fucked up. And then he says... I need the vacation, which is not something that Furlong taught him. He never heard that, so I don't know where he got that. Or maybe... They're just trying to make it lighthearted. He's learning comedy, but, like, there's no precedent set there. Right. It was a little out of place. And so then Arnold is like, you need to kill me because... They're like, oh, that's it. He's dead. We don't need to worry about it. And, oh, throw throw the arm and the chip in that they got from... Um, Dyson. Cyberdyne. And he's like, there's still one more chip left. And he points to his head. You have to kill me. I cannot self-terminate. And he gives the controls to this chain to Linda Hamilton because he knows she can do it. He knows that she wants to kill him in a way. But she's grown to the point where she doesn't want to. She trusts him now. And she likes having him around to help protect her son. Her son especially doesn't want this to happen. He is freaking out and he's screaming and he's like, doesn't he hit him at one point or whatever? You can't, I order you not to. Yes. 
but his primary programming takes precedence and he needs to destroy himself. And he looks at John who is, who's been screaming his heart out and he's crying and he like puts his gloved hand up to the tear and he's like, I know now why you cry. And on its own in isolation, that is the corniest fucking line ever. Us reciting it again out of context, you can hear how fucking corny it is. But for some weird reason, the way they built up this relationship, it just fucking works. And then he says, but it's something I can never do. Yes. And it is powerful. It is heartbreaking. And you... Good Lord. You do not want Arnold to die either. You do not want him to die. After you being this to stay, unstoppable and you villain. you to just take care of John Connor. Yes. I know now why you cry. But it's something I can never do. And so he gets lowered into the molten lava. And as he, he dips down under, as he looks up at them and they look down at him. And then his hand is the last thing to go under. And then it turns into a thumbs up. Which, good lord would not pass today. There's no fucking way they would do that today. Well, passed then, yeah. it passes now, so... <laughs> you can fuck off. It passes now because it's in this artifact from 1991. I love this movie. It's almost 30... Can, can you believe that? T2 is almost 30 years old. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. I was like four when it came out. <laughs> when the five-year-old me saw it on TV, I knew that 13-year-old Edward Furlong was the love of my life. And the movie ends with more of Sarah's narration. And she says, Oh, yeah. The unknown future rolls towards us. I face it for the first time with the sense of hope. Because if a machine, a Terminator, can learn the value of human life, maybe we can too. And that's the end of the movie. Horny. Should have taken that out. Should have just ended on the thumbs up. Yeah. Well, they needed some sort of. Serious moment after that. Yeah. You need this falling action, you know. But anyway, that is Terminator 2 in the ultimate cut. Trust me, you did not miss anything. <laughs> we get one scene where the T-1000 is in John's home, his foster parents home. And scans his room, which is just, eh, whatever, we didn't need it. Cutting to it probably would have broken the flow of some other scene, so they just took it out. But we also get this park with the swing, except it's not Sarah Connor pushing John. It's an older John pushing his kid. And Sarah Connor is in old age makeup, watching them. Oh, shit. Smiling, proving that they did, in fact, stop Judgment Day. John fights the war differently than it was foretold. Here, on the battlefield of the Senate, his weapons are common sense and hope. Which means T3 could never happen, any of the other movies could never happen. And yeah, so they ended up taking that out, I guess, to leave the door open, maybe, or just because it was such a cheesy fucking scene. Mm. So there you go. That was the ultimate cut scene you get. You could just watch that online. They did release that version uh, and it was like on the Blu-ray or the DVD special edition or something like that. And they haven't put it 
in other versions since then. It's like an Easter egg. It's a, it's an extra feature now. It's a deleted scene. They didn't incorporate it back into the movie since then because apparently people did not like that. <laughs> Kelsey, is there anything else you want to say about this movie before we move into ratings? The acting is great. The direction is fantastic. It was industry shaking in terms of special effects. Even though it wasn't the first one to do a lot of this stuff. That doesn't matter. It impressed the most people. It was the most effective. They did the best. Yeah, you mentioned while we were watching it, and it's absolutely true that that effect of his head coming together in the helicopter or whatever. Yeah. Yes, I remember. That was something they were- Fucking everywhere. They were super proud of it. Yes. You saw it a lot (laughs) in different things. It's just really good, and- The soundtrack is very good, very suspenseful. I love the cinematography. I really like the blue lighting that we have through most of the film Uh that they did. And the story is so good. Honestly, if it weren't for the corny narration. Like real projection, those scenes too. And the occasional, yeah. It's not perfect. But other than that, this movie is so good. But Kelsey, can I please convince you that 100 does not mean perfect? perfect because i know you're not going to give this movie a hundred because you don't think it's perfect it's not like you reserve 100 for like one movie and one movie only what do you think it has on rotten tomatoes keeping in mind that the original when we recorded that episode had a 100 97 93 wow t2 features thrilling action sequences and eye-popping visual effects But what takes this sci-fi action landmark to the next level is the depth of the human and cyborg characters. Metacritic of 75, though. Everyone liked this movie, or almost everyone liked this movie, but they didn't rate it very highly. Cinema score, though, of an A+, which we do not see very often. People coming out of this movie had such a good time. They fucking loved it. Well, I understand why. It's exciting. It's exhilarating. It's scary. It's suspenseful. It's cute and sweet. It's everything. Yeah, uh-huh. So 93 Rotten Tomatoes, do you think that's uh, overrated or underrated? Slightly underrated. What would you give it, keeping in mind that you gave the original, and so did I, a 94? Give it a 97. 97. That's pretty dang high. Mm-hmm. That's one of your higher scores. You've only scored two movies higher than a 97 ever. Poltergeist, you gave a 99, and Rosemary's Baby, like I said, is your only 100 you've ever handed out. But you've given 97s to Silence of the Lambs, 7, and of course, Aliens. So... Yeah, it has a good company, I guess I would say. I would say so. I think this is ever so slightly, ever so slightly not as good as the first. I don't think that it's the, like, I see how T2 is the better created film. But I but the end product of the first one is just more important to me, I think. So I will give this one a 93. Just one point lower than what I gave the original. But seriously, absolutely stellar movie. Incredible. That is Terminator 2 
Judgment Day from 1991. Before we get into our next movie, Kelsey, horror trivia. Where are the phone calls coming from in the movie When a Stranger Calls? The call is coming from inside the house. Yes. Yes. Kelsey, in Ex Machina, Caleb works for a major software company founded by Nathan. What is the company named? Can I look at my notes? No, because of course you wrote it down in your notes. I have confidence in that. I don't know. I have no idea. It's called Blue Book, and it is basically... A... I most certainly wrote that yeah, down uh -huh. multiple times. Yeah, because they do mention it a few times. Yes, they do. And uh, as it's a very fact, obviously supposed to be Google. Yes, it is an analog for Google. Ava, at one point, explains that, yes, Caleb already knows this, but they talk about how that's the name of uh, half of Ludwig Wittgenstein's notes, he had a duo of books that were basically his transcribed lectures, like his lecture notes from 1933 to 35. 33 to 34 is the blue book and 34 to 35 is the brown book. And they were actually bound in that color. The lectures were mainly about the concepts of human thought and language. So, of course, it relates to this next story, which is... 2014's Ex Machina, written and directed by Alex Garland, starring Alicia Vikander, Donald Gleason, Oscar Isaac, and Sonoya Mizuna. What is Ex Machina about? A coder for Blue Book, apparently. Yes. Wins a contest to spend a week with the creator of Blue Book. On his private land. And... You find out that it is because the creator of Blue Book has created an AI and wants someone at his company to do the Turing test for that robot. And then we see what happens. Yep. When asked when this movie takes place, Alex Garland said 10 minutes from now. Quote, if somebody like Google or Apple announced tomorrow that they had made Ava, we would all be surprised, but we wouldn't be that surprised. Exactly. Yeah. Of course, the term ex machina is part of the phrase deus ex machina. If you've ever watched Dodgeball, you know what that relates to in the form of storytelling. Literally means the god from the machine uh, because they would have a pulley system above a stage way back when. And they would lower a character, a god character from the sky down on this pulley system and he would come down at the end of a complex story and just magic everything back to the way it should be and that's the term we gave deus ex machina is the term we gave to when something happens that just corrects everything right it just sets everything right but the term literally means god of the machine or in the machine and so now we just get the ex machina part and it implies the god part because that's going to be a theme in this movie is if you create an ai does that make you god yes very similar to alien yeah or more likely prometheus i guess they deal with it more in the prequels of course everyone's aware of this i'm not going to say this to blow your fucking mind but you might not have thought about it Donald Gleason, which is how you pronounce his name, in his words, it's like tonal, but with a D, Donald Gleason, it's not Dom Nail, plays the kind of meager Caleb, and Oscar Isaac plays the self-confident, 
power hungry in a way. But wait, where have we seen Donald before? Oscar Isaac and Donald Gleason were both in the Star Wars prequel trilogy as kind of reverse roles where Donald is the megalomaniacal power hungry villain character and Oscar Isaac is the sort of likable hero. Interesting. Yeah. So it's it's just interesting seeing them in like completely reverse contexts. Their relationship is completely different. And where have we seen him on this show before? Okay, well, of course, everyone knows he's a Weasley from Harry Potter, but we haven't covered that. <laughs> we talked about it on the show, but we haven't covered it on the show. We're not ever going to cover Harry Potter on this show. No, I know, but it, the con- the conversation happened on the show. No, I'm not interested in doing Harry Potter on the show. Do not worry. He is, I don't know if he's Cain or Abel, from Mother. Oh, yes. He is Cain in Mother, who kills his brother, Abel. Michelle yeah. Pfeiffer mm-hmm. and... Ed Harris. Who was also in Creepshow and The Stand. Michelle Pfeiffer, who was also in What Lies Beneath. The movie is free with a subscription on Fubo and Hoopla and Showtime and Canopy. You can rent it for 2 to $4. Redbox is the lowest at $2. You can buy it for 8 to $13. Amazon is the lowest at $8. Should people watch Ex Machina? Sure. It's well, good. it's very big of you. How gracious. I think it's good enough to see. Kelsey's not a huge fan of this movie. I really enjoy it. We we talked about, I feel like I had a revelation as to why Kelsey didn't like the ending of this movie. And I explained it to her. I don't know if you agree that that has an influence on it. We can talk about it when we get to the end of the story, but. Okay, we'll do that. Then. Okay. But yeah, I th- I think absolutely you should watch it. As far as tone goes, it is much different than T2. Yes. The tone is much more slow and patient and methodical. And you guys know how much I love that shit. And the terror in this movie is much more about paranoia and the potential for something terrible to happen. That's really what the horror is in this movie. And you'll get some violence too. Don't worry. Yes. Some, not all of it is perpetuated against humans. Yes. So be prepared. You can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 2014's Ex Machina. You are dead center of the greatest scientific event in the history of man. Hello. Did you know that I was brought here to test you? No. Does Ava actually like you? Or is she pretending to like you? Nathan isn't your friend. You're wrong. What will happen to me if I fail your test? Ex Machina. Written R. All right, Kelsey. Before we get started, I just want to point out that there is a lot going on in this movie. There's a lot of subtlety. There's a lot that goes unsaid, even though there's a lot of talking. This movie is almost completely dialogue and conversations make up the entire plot almost. But that means there's a lot of dialogue and conversations to talk about. And there's a lot that goes unsaid even still that we can talk about as well. There's tons of stuff we could talk about. We are not going to cover it all. That would take hours and hours and hours. And it would be a whole project in and of itself. So we're not going to do that. 
There's going to be a lot of stuff that you probably want us to talk about, but we're not going to hit. So if there's anything that you thought of while watching this movie and would like to share, please continue the conversation on Twitter or via email or something else, uh, because we'd love to hear from you. Uh, with that said, and that sort of caveat out of the way, how does Ex Machina begin? So Donal is at work. Uh-huh. Caleb. Caleb. He's at work, and he gets a VIP email, and it says first prize winner, and everybody is very, very excited for him. Yes. Which is why I feel that the ending of this movie is different than Krista's. <laughs> I don't deny that this is the case. We'll talk about it when we get to the end. But everybody is super excited for him, okay? So the next shot, we don't learn anything else. We From the next shot, we see him in a helicopter, and he asks the, the pilot, um, how long before we start flying over as a state? And the pilot laughs and says, we've been flying over as a state for the past two hours. Yes. So this guy is just disgustingly wealthy. Uh-huh. And when he flies down... Donald's like, wait, you're leaving me here? I'm in the middle of nowhere. And the guy goes, this is the closest I'm allowed to get to the actual building. So you will have to walk, yes. follow the river to the building. And the impression that we get is not that the helicopter can't land anywhere nearby. It's that he's expressly forbidden from getting close. Yes. Yes. So Donald does the walk. And when he gets there... Um, it tells him to stand in front of the intercom, and he makes a stupid face, and they take a picture, and it's very funny. Those employee photos, like, always terrible. <laughs> yeah, they really are. They really are. It's like getting a picture taken for your driver's license. But so he goes inside, and he meets... Oscar Isaac, playing Nathan. Nathan is the CEO of Blue Book, like we mentioned, uh, the company that Nathan works for. And just right off the bat, he is not at all what Caleb was expecting. No. He is extremely honest and extremely like, hey, I drink a lot and that's not a problem for mm -hmm. me and it should not be a problem for you. Yeah. And oh, I have a wicked hangover from when I was totally plastered last night here alone. And it tells you something, I think, a little bit about... It's almost preloading that, oh, you know, Nathan might be an okay, normal dude. He also might have some weaknesses. Such as alcoholism. Yeah. And they're talking, and throughout this conversation, Nathan kind of belittles Caleb by telling him, hey, man, I get it. You're freaked out. I'm the creator of Blue Book. I get it. It would scare me, too. But I just really want to hang out with a friend for a week. Yes. Which is bullshit and Donald knows it's bullshit but it's like he's now been in a put put in a position where he can't act like it's bullshit well I mean I think the nature of our society is such that we all hope we can be in a position of power and influence and monetary security that Nathan is in and so we try to humanize those people and make them heroes because if they're not then we can never become them and so we like to think that, oh, no, he just needs a friend, and maybe I can be that friend. But no, there is a power imbalance in this relationship, and there always will be. Nathan is allowed to be brutally honest and straightforward with Caleb, and he very much is. But Caleb will never have that same power with Nathan. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, 
I like the way that the guy who plays Nathan plays it because you can never really tell. No, it's what fantastic. He, what he genuinely wants. It's perfect. I think Oscar Isaac did a fucking incredible job in this movie because, like I said before, all the terror in this movie is based around paranoia and not being able to control things and not knowing what's actually going on. Every character has their own little paranoia, but Caleb, above all, is the one with the least power in this situation, which is weird because one of them, more than one of them, is a literal prisoner. But yeah, so you never really can tell if Nathan genuinely wants to be friendly with him because we will find out that of course he's being manipulative of course he is he's got his own alt- he's got his own agenda here i think a lot of you guys out there have these people in your life that are a little bit more manipulative and maybe they even know that and you know that and everyone actively knows that but it doesn't change the fact that they have this sort of like influence and they're straightforward they're honest and they wield that as like a power. I think we all know those sorts of people in our lives, or at least a lot of us do. Agreed. But those people rarely have the kind of position that Nathan has. That Nathan has. has. Yes. So combine that with his his literal powers. Because here's the thing. If a person wants to be manipulative, it's usually pretty fucking obvious. Um, I don't think... I don't think that he, I don't even think that Donal is supposed to be confused about that situation. No, no, not at all. But again, what what I'm saying is that Nathan, the actor, he just plays it very well where you can't tell if Oscar he's Isaac, yeah. if he genuinely wants to be friends with Donal or not. Right. And yeah. I love that. Uh-huh. I love that that confusion is always there. Even in the end when you think Nathan is a total asshole, you're still left wondering, did he genuinely want to be friends with Don- Donald? You yes. don't know. Uh-huh. So they're walking through the compound, and Nathan explains, the key card is your way of not ever having to ask me anything. You wave it, it'll either let you in or it won't. All right? That's all, the, that's all already been predetermined for you. Yeah. If you get to a door and it doesn't let you in, then yeah, you can't go there. And it answer, it solves all the problems that hosts and guests inevitably have is like, hey, am I allowed to do this thing? And it seems perfectly reasonable and like, oh, what a great idea. But it's another expression of Nathan's power over Caleb. Yes. So they go into Caleb's bedroom that he's going to be sleeping in. Mm -hmm. And Nathan is like, you have a problem with this room. Ah, I see what the problem is. It's because there are no windows in here. Uh Uh-huh. He gives some reason about why there are no windows. Well, it's a large facility. You're underground right now. Yeah. But, of course, Caleb is going to pretend like nothing is wrong. Everything is fine. Right. Uh Uh-huh. The gracious guest. Nathan is like, okay, but none of this really matters because there's something that I so desperately want to share with you. The real reason you're here. This wasn't a prize package to you know, let you hang out with me. Like, I'm here, I want to show you something. I want to share something with you. But first, you got to sign an NDA. This is another expression of power. Nathan can do and say whatever he wants, but Caleb is getting further restricted now. Caleb is worried about the NDA, but he's also worried about missing out on something incredible. And Nathan has all this power in this relationship. Contracts are supposed to be mutually beneficial, but oftentimes, especially most of the time, they're absolutely not. And in this case, that's the, the same. 
Nathan has this expression of power. I have something you want. You need to restrict yourself in order to experience it. Even Nathan admits that it's not standard because Caleb, because Nathan will say, just say, just sign it. It's just a standard NDA. And, and Caleb is like, it doesn't feel standard. I think I should have a lawyer. And Nathan admits, okay, you're right. It's not. It's not standard. Yeah, but you, you can either... not sign it or you can sign it. Those are your two options. Yeah, we can hang out for a week and just do nothing uh -huh. and it's special. And that's totally fine. Or. Or you can be involved in something incredible. I think I need a lawyer. It's standard. It doesn't feel very standard. Okay, it's not standard. What can I tell you, Caleb? You don't have to sign it. You know, we can spend the next few days just shooting pool, getting drunk together, bonding. And when you discover what you've missed out on in about a year, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. And so, of course, Caleb signs it. Who wouldn't? But he's going to regret it. So immediately, Nathan asks him if he knows what the Turing test is. And for the audience, Caleb recites what the Turing test is, which is... It's a test where you put a potentially, you put a, an artificial intelligence in front of a human, and if the human can't tell that that artificial intelligence is a machine, then the AI has passed the Turing test. And But from the get-go, we should all see the huge problem here. Is that Caleb already knows that he's going to be interacting with an AI. But Caleb doesn't bring that up now. He, he will bring it up, it up later. later. Yes. And Nathan will have a bullshit answer of, well, isn't it more impressive if she can convince you she's a human, even if you know she's yes. a, a robot? And it's like, This is the story no. kind of molding itself into the, oh, this is the flow of a real story. We're going to reveal something for you. And we can't do that unless we structure it this way. Yes. Because if we answered all these questions early on, then the movie would be a half hour shorter. Yes. And Caleb is just like, oh my God, are you building an AI? And he says, I've already built one. Uh-huh. And her name is Ava. We get these sessions. And if you guys remember when we did Morgan, it's kind of similar to that. Yes. He's going to sit down with her behind a piece of glass, asking her questions. Another imbalance in a relationship. Yes. Let me ask you, Chris, between this and Morgan, who do you think did a better job of acting like a robot? I want to say Alicia Vikander did. Really? Yeah. Why? Because Morgan was a little bit more animalistic, which makes it feel like there's there's more of a nature to her before she ever gets to the point of like they I don't I don't think they they only barely address the oh can AI be self-aware is it a personality that deserves rights they get into that kind of conversation a little bit in Morgan and they don't address the fact that like she's basically an animal and isn't there something natural about that? Because if you program an AI, it's not going to be... Right, because the big difference here is that they combined organic material with... Biological material? Yeah. Like the In Terminator. <laughs> right, right. A little bit. The Terminator, there's a very clear distinction between kind the of starts more as human yes. than she does as AI, uh -huh. whereas Terminator is the opposite. And I agree that Ex Machina is more like Terminator because she is, first and foremost, a computer. Yeah. Before he tries to make her like a, like a human. Right, yeah. Honestly, I think What's-Her-Face does a more interesting job in Morgan. 
But I do think you're right. I think that in this, it feels a little bit more mechanical. Yeah. And I think she feels a little bit more like a robot. But again, it's a little more interesting when she's more human. Yeah, but uh, I, uh, I think you're right. But kind of like Nathan says, isn't it more impressive if you already know she's an AI and she still convinces you she has a consciousness? Morgan had to use tactics that were a little less realistic to convince you to have some sympathy for Morgan. And I think, isn't it more impressive that something is more obviously a machine and still is a compelling character? It's so funny that you say that because I still remember the first time you and Micah showed me that video of the AI that can walk. It's it's not it's it's not really an AI, but it's you know those walking machines that who is it? Any is it kind MIT of or whoever it is? Yeah, they they walk over any terrain, and we've all seen them. And they carry boxes, and they jump up uh, steps, and things like that. This was their dog version, and the engineers were showing how it figures out how to maintain its balance, and they would shove it with their feet, like they would kick it and push it with their feet. And it would maintain its balance. It would it would remain upright and it would autocorrect. And it felt like a living being in that moment. It looked and moved like, even though it was very expressly a machine. It very obviously a very machine. Obviously there is no machine. question if it's a machine. Right. But the way it moves and it corrects like itself. It looks like a dog. And it looks like it's being assaulted by these it engineers. It looks like it's being kicked. Yes. A dog is being kicked Which by is absolutely not. But we still have this emotional reaction to it. Yes. I don't think it's all that impressive. All I have to see is you kicking a box and I feel bad <laughs> for the box. Like, it, I don't think that's impressive. Because I think either you're either, either you're a person who cares or you're a person who doesn't. I feel right. that's the answer. I, I don't think. Right. But I mean, if it was floating in midair and it used like propulsion to stay up and then they kicked it and it just floated across the ground. That would be less so because it does not have. You're right. It does, it does not, not have, have the human element. Yeah. And, and, no, it's, and it's again, impressive. nothing about that looked human. It looks I like understand. a box, a walking box. Right, but it's still impressive that they built this thing entirely mechanically, and it has legs, which makes us feel a connection to it, and it it registers emotionally with us. So I think there is definitely something impressive about that, even though it looks like a box. There are visual human indicators, and those are what trigger our empathy feelings. Anyway, we're not going to solve AI and human relations with it in this podcast. <laughs> so when they are having their conversation about the fact that you're creating an AI, I already did, blah, blah, blah. In that moment, Nathan says something about the history of man. It's the biggest thing in the history of man or whatever. And Caleb will say, we're not talking about men. We're talking about gods. This is the history of gods uh -huh. because we've created a human or whatever. Are you building an AI? I've already built one. And over the next few days, you're going to be the human component in the Turing test. Holy shit. Yeah, that's right, Caleb. You got it. Because if that test is passed, you are dead center of the greatest scientific event in the history of man. If you've created a conscious machine, it's not the history of man. 
That's the history of gods. And that will become important here. So I wanted to make sure that we talk about that now. Yeah. He sits down to have his conversation with Ava. And what does Ava look like, Kelsey? She is completely a robot, but very obviously a female robot. She's got a chest and and hips. But the only thing about her that looks human is her face. So all Nathan has done is put a face over her face so that she so that you're not looking at just a robot face. She also has hands and feet. That's true. Yes. And the reason is because if she just puts on clothes, then you can't see that she's a robot. Right. And in her torso, we can see inside of her, her casing is transparent. And yes. so we can see that there's some cool visual shit going on inside of her. We can actually see through her in a lot of ways. The interesting thing about this, and I'll say this now, I was going to talk about this at the end, but this movie won the Oscar for Best Visual Effects that year, and it had a $15 million budget. It it's was pretty seamless. It was going up against The Revenant with, you know, like the bear attack and all of that, which was uh-huh. entirely digital. It's going up against Mad Max Fury Road. Really? And, and Star Wars The Force Awakens. All movies that had it beat out Mad over, Max. Yes, 135 million for The Revenant, 150 million for Mad Max, 200 million for The Force Awakens, and this small little 15 million dollar movie won the award for best visual effects. They are incredible, and you stop thinking about them immediately, and that's kind of what's so great about it. Yes, it is pretty seamless, except when they peel off skin. Yeah. That's the Those only time that you're like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but just her walking around, it does look very seamless. Uh-huh. Not a whole lot happens in their first interaction. He then goes and speaks with Nathan, and this is when Nathan will just will be like, you know, I haven't stopped thinking about what you said the other day, that I'm a god. Yeah, I just, I think that's just so great, man. And yeah, Don, he's like, that's Donald, not what I said. That, that's not at all what I said. I didn't say that. He keeps doing it, uh-huh. and Nathan keeps ignoring yeah, him. Yeah, he said, yeah, whatever. It's basically what we're talking about here, you know. And it a, another representation of the imbalance in their power. This is when he'll give the bullshit excuse of, isn't it more impressive that she can convince you that she's human if, she's, if, if you already know she's a robot? Which I think uh-huh. is bullshit, because I'm never not going to know she's a robot. Yeah, but that's not... You can't convince me she's a human because I'll never not know that. Right, but that's not a problem. We know that dogs and cats aren't human and we still ascribe them human features. It doesn't matter. We we are never not aware that they are not human. And we still, in many ways, especially with our own pets, think of them in personified terms. Well, they have their own thoughts and feelings. We all know that animals... No, but we ascribe them some pretty complex thoughts. I guess... But I I mean, my point is, is that we look at them, we see a dog, we look at them, we see a cat, and we still have empathy for them. Because they have personalities. Yes. Her personality was programmed. Yeah, no, but the point is, and this is where the what the movie gets into is at what point is it its own thing, and it's not programmed. That's what the whole conversation about Jackson Pollock is about, is about, you know, he turns his mind off, and he lets his body just do what it's going to do. Not, it's not random, because you could program randomness, and that, even that programmed randomness is not truly random. But this is, his just body moves in a way that feels good to him, and it's not 
describable. It's indefinable. And that is humanity to Nathan because he has a Jackson Pollock painting and they have a whole conversation about it. We cut back to the Jackson Pollock painting at the end of the movie, which is how we know it's a symbol of everything that's going on in this movie. And that's what we're talking about here is it does not matter that she was programmed. At what point does she have this indefinable non-randomness, but non-programmedness? But okay. The only movies that do that right are Terminator, are um, eh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. I think the Terminator is very specifically programmed, and they they, they start to layer no, independent No, I'm saying learning. when Skynet becomes self-aware, the way yes. that they describe oh, that- Oh, we'll talk about that later. Is too. very realistic in my, uh-huh. in my view. And that's kind of what's happening here, except that she's never not self-aware, so we don't even get that transition. Right. That we, transition we get told already that happened. transition over him talking about his previous models and all the changes he made over time and all of that. We get told about that. That, But I don't think you need to see a person grow up from a baby to a child, an adolescent, a teenager, to an adult to accept them as an adult. So why do you need to see that here? What we need to understand is the how she is right now and whether or not that is. We don't need to see her grow up. To appreciate that is my point. I do enjoy the conversation that Nathan and Caleb have here because Caleb is trying to understand how he created Ava. And he's like, come on, talk to me about it. And trust me, I can, I'll get it. I understand. And Nathan goes, it's not that I think you're too dumb. I just want to have a regular old conversation. But what I think is interesting about that is kind of later he kind of does say that he thinks he's too dumb. Yeah. And again, it's it's because we never get to see anything from Nathan's perspective. We never get clarification on what he wanted out of this out of this situation. So it's difficult to tell because he's like, oh, I don't think you're dumb, but maybe he does think he's dumb. But in that moment when he says that, it feels very real. Yeah. feels like, no, I get that you get it. I just want to talk to you. And so, again, Nathan's character is very interesting because he's kind of shrouded in we don't know what he wants. Very much so. And even later on, and these are the best sort of reveals, character reveals, is the ones that feel legitimate and then you find out that even that reveal wasn't legitimate. And because later on, he's going to reveal that, no, you didn't win a lottery. I specifically picked you. I've been watching you. And you are the best coder I have. And I brought you here specifically for this purpose. And then even later than that, we find out that that's not true. He has been watching him, but... He picked him because he thinks he is manipulatable based on, you know, and because he could, he's a he good could, person. He does yes. say that. Yeah. It's no, because I think you're, you're a morally good, good person. You're a good person and you're you know, easy to manipulate. You're easy to manipulate. Yes. And he even structures Ava, her personality and her looks and everything at the start before Ava starts building her own on things that Caleb would be attracted to and easily manipulated by. Which is why he says at one point in the movie, and we'll talk about how important this is, that the real breakthrough in AI is not going to be Ava. It's going to be the next model. This isn't a final test. Nathan is stacking the deck by picking Caleb. 
in in Ava passing this test. He specifically picks someone that can be manipulated in specific ways and then and then adjusts Ava and Caleb's interactions with her to support those manipulations. It's just a shame that he underestimated him. Yeah, underestimated him and her. No, I don't think underestimated her. I think but I especially underestimated him. Underestimated yeah. uh-huh. Caleb. Yeah, he knew what he was dealing with 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 Ava. I I think that that is one of the great things about the movie. What the movie is saying is that you can be the smartest fucking person in the world, and that still doesn't mean that having data points about a person tells you who they are and what they're capable of. And Caleb proves that because we already saw that. In the movie with the talking AI who convinces the mom, and I think Shia LaBeouf, not Shia LaBeouf, maybe Jake Gyllenhaal, somebody famous. What are you talking about? Some movie where the the AI becomes alive and tells her that she has to do all this shit or her son will die. Because based on her search engine reviews, it was like, I knew you'd do anything to save your son. And then the end, she's like, fuck you, and fights against it. I have no idea what you're talking about. You don't know what I'm talking about? No. It's a really, really bad movie. Like, like really bad. Did I just, I do that sometimes. (laughs) We see movies, and then I 100% erase them from my mind. I was so uninterested. What movie is that? I don't remember. Eagle Eye. I said it. Shia LaBeouf. I said that. I said it was either Shia LaBeouf or oh, it was Jake oh. Hall. <laughs> oh my god. Eagle Eye. Why did did I see that? I don't know. I don't know if I saw that. That movie is garbage. <laughs> no, I don't think I did see it. Okay, I don't feel as bad now. Anyway. But so Nathan is just like, dude, I just want to have a beer with you. I want to know what you feel about her. Just yeah. what you think about her. And Stop he goes, using big words. Just tell me what you feel. He goes, I feel that she's fucking amazing. Yeah. And that is exactly what Nathan was looking for. And he says, cheers. And they drink. The next shot we get is of Caleb in his bathroom. And I was like, why is there that weird scar in his back? And then you find out later it's because he was in a car accident, a car accident with his parents. Yeah, uh-huh. And he's restless and can't sleep. So he turns on the TV. And what does he see? He realizes that his TV, which is like a screen in the it's wall. Just a projector. Yeah. Well, but yeah, it's like, but it's like physically part of the wall. Oh, is it? I thought it was a projection. No. Is actually hooked up to the closed circuit television in the facility. And he has access to see certain things, including Ava. What Caleb doesn't know is that both Nathan and Ava know that he's doing this. Now... They don't know when he's watching, do they? I don't think Ava does. Nathan does. Because he can see him in his room. Yes. But so that would mean that Nathan would have to be awake and watching. Yeah. And I think he is most of the time when he's not At drunk. At two o'clock in the morning when, when not, he was passed out drunk. he's not drunk and passed out. But he also has <laughs> recordings of it. Like, yes. Like, you know, the system knows when he turns his TV on and when he changes it to her room and you know he it records it i'm sure i'm sure it records everything while he is watching her there is a power failure and he's locked in his room and he can't get out they're introducing us to the concept of lockdowns during power failures yes and they are definitely introducing us to the fact that caleb does not like being locked up no that is his biggest fear and it will be the end of his life because he trusts people. Yep. Stupidly. <laughs> but notice you said people Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> So, but then power gets restored. Now, guys, we're going to be told later that she causes the power failure. 
but we only see her do it sometimes. Other times it will just fucking happen, so and you're is, just like, what? This is a gap in the storytelling. When they when Caleb talks to Nathan about the power outages, Nathan is really upset because, yeah, I paid a whole lot of money to set up the, the systems in this facility, and they fucked it up. And so it what for whatever reason, the power goes out occasionally and I'm trying to figure it out. I can't bring them back here because there's too much secure information. He tells Caleb, well, because after they built it, I killed them all. (laughs) No, I don't think that's actually the case, but it's this funny joke. But his point is, I can't bring anybody into this facility right now. So if anything needs to be fixed, I have to figure it out. And throughout the movie, he's talking about how he's. Trying, he's investigating the power outages and he's trying to fix them. And we see two different things. Well, Ava tells us one thing and then we see her do another. She presses her palm to these panels and that causes power outages. It surges the power and it fails. She reverses her power flow because that's how she charges herself. That's how she gets power. It's another thing that tells us about the end of this movie that what happens next? Well, eventually she runs out of power. <laughs> right. But also, I, I wonder... Nathan built her, so Nathan knows that's mm-hmm. how she gets her power. Why wouldn't he have figured out that she's the one doing the surges? Because he didn't program her to have that capability. That's something she figured out on her own. And So how is she supposed to be charging? The, the power is supposed to go from the facility to her. She's sending power back out into the facility. She's basically reprogrammed her body to reverse the power flow. But the point is, is that she says there are induction plates in the floor. You know how you put your phone on that stand that we have over there and it just charges. You don't have to plug anything in. It just touches. That's all that's happened. She just needs to touch the floor and she's getting power. But later on in the movie, we see that she specifically touches a specific panel to turn the power off. Mm -hmm. And so that's a gap in the storytelling, I'm saying. I think what happens there is that he's kind of figured out that she's causing, because we do know that he knows she's causing the the power outages. He figures that out at a certain point. We're not revealed the exact moment he figures that out, but it is sometime in the course of this movie. And so did he make it to where she needs to charge by touching this panel now instead? But then why wouldn't he stop her from causing power outages by touching that? It's a hole in the movie, but not an important one. I mean, there's this philosophy, and I agree with it to an extent, that you haven't won by figuring out a gap in the movie. All you've done is talked yourself out of enjoying something that you might enjoy. Yes, there is a responsibility to make the movie enjoyable enough to where you don't care about those things or you don't notice those things. And if they can't accomplish that, then they didn't do a great job of performing the art. Yes. Yes, this is a mistake. But a movie is not a challenge. It is not a puzzle to be figured out and won. Right, I understand. We just talked about how much we love Terminator 2. And and there's lots of problems We discussed the fact that it makes no sense that he is liquid metal and still has a computer inside him somewhere. It doesn't doesn't make the movie immune to conversations about places where it's failed to either fool us or put us in such a position to where we don't care about it. Right. Right. And I mean, I got to say, I mean, look, I've been watching that movie for 30 years. Yeah. And it only just dawned on me. Yeah. The first time I sat down and I was like, hey, (laughs) wait a minute. You know, and the movie does such an excellent job that for 30 years I never thought about it. Uh Uh-huh. Whereas Ex Machina, I've seen it twice. And I'm like, hmm. Yeah, you've (laughs) seen it. You've seen it twice when you were 27 and 32 and not when you were four. 
and didn't know to think about all these things and had already pre-accepted the movie by that point. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you can't act like the movies are coming from different starting points and that you are much more forgiving to Terminator than you are to this movie through no fault of either of the movies. Anyway, yes, she is causing these power outages. He does experience it, and he starts to kind of have a little panic attack about the fact that he's locked in his room. And when they talk about that, Nathan explains that, yeah, that's a lockdown. It's a separate part of the program uh, in this facility. Whenever the power goes out and it switches to reserve power, it locks all the doors because I can't power that logic that lets the key cards work. So better that everything be locked than everything be unlocked. Exactly. And Caleb is not listening close enough to that conversation. Oh, I think he's listening exactly close enough. Mm, he, he is listening for his own agenda. Right, yes, he's exactly. He's not hearing the problem. What, yeah, the problem is, is that Ava controls these power outages. He's not... That's the problem. He's blinded. He's already yes. been blinded by a schoolboy crush on a fucking robot. Uh-huh, one that she points out. Which, and that's exactly what Nathan wanted to happen, but Nathan, again, underestimated him. Yes. Never underestimate your enemies. Always overestimate what yeah, they're going what, to do. What Nathan assumes, we find out later in the movie, we'll just talk about spoilers right now, I think. We already told you you should watch this movie. What Nathan wants to happen is he wants Caleb to fall in love with Ava, be manipulated by her feminine wiles and her superior ability to see what's going on inside his head by physical markers, then use that to her benefit because he knows that Ava wants to be let out and he feels like he's picked exactly the sort of person that Ava can manipulate to try and let her out. The problem is, is that Nathan underestimates Caleb and overestimates his own ability to predict exactly what's going to happen and how it happens. And he's right for a lot of it, but he is wrong in very key points. And that will be his undoing. Yes. But he wants Ava to try to get out. That's and he wants later Caleb to try in the film. Let's yes. stick to where we are. Yes. So because of the, the lockdown, Donald gets scared and he walks around the compound, opens up a door that opens. So he figures, fuck it, I, I can go in. And it's this weird moment where you think that, like, maybe Nathan has set something up. He walks into this room. There's a phone. And he kind of walks up to the phone almost like... He doesn't know what's going to happen. Am I supposed to find this phone when yeah, I answer it? Uh-huh. What's going to happen? But nothing happens. That I love the way that scene is shot because yeah. you think this phone is going to be important. It is not it in is any way. Absolutely not. It's just another marker that Caleb is isolated. Yes. And as he picks up the phone, again, we don't know. Is he going to answer it? Is it going to be Ava? Like, what's going to uh. happen? Nothing. All of a sudden, out of the darkness, Nathan says... You're not supposed to call anybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and your key card that you have to insert into the phone won't let you anyway. Yes. It's just another expression of Nathan's power and control over Caleb and how isolated Caleb is. And Caleb, like, apologizes profusely. And, and he's goes, like, I didn't know what was going on. I, I had no idea. He's like, oh, this is where he explains the power outages thing. And Nathan says, who are you going to call? Caleb's like, what? <laughs> and he's like, Ghostbusters? And Caleb's like, Huh? <laughs> He's like, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. It's a joke. Come on, it's man. It's a fucking movie, dude. <laughs> I love how, like, annoyed he is. Who are you going to call? Oh. I don't know. 
No one really. Ghostbusters. What? Who are you gonna call? Ghostbusters? It's a. F it's a movie, man. You don't know that movie? Ghost gives Dan Aykroyd all sex. Nathan is completely trashed. He's yes, sitting he's alone drunk. in the dark, getting wasted. It shows the limits of Nathan and his ambitions and what it has done to him as a person. So they're having this conversation, and right before they, they end the conversation, Nathan is talking to Caleb about Ava, and and Nathan goes, I already know what you think about Ava. Now it's time to find out what Ava thinks about you. Yes. We also haven't talked about there is a fourth character in all of this in the Kyoko. form of Kyoko. Kyoko... We both mentioned, I think we missed it. We both mentioned that when we first saw the movie, we couldn't remember if Kyoko being another artificial intelligence was supposed to be a test. surprise. Like that yeah, was it's like the, another Turing test. The real Turing test was, can you tell that she is a robot? Right. But I feel like maybe we missed it in this watch and that he does tell him that she's an earlier model. Later. Much later. Oh, okay. No, remember, but when we're he first doesn't know she's a model until she shows him. No, and but that's see, what makes no, him No, but mad. that's the point. I don't think that that's the case. I think we just missed that. I feel like somewhere he tells her that before she reveals it to Caleb. He says that she doesn't know English, but it could just be, well, she's Japanese. She, you know, doesn't know English and that's specifically so he can keep secrets. But yes, there is a a servant character in the form of Kyoko. So yeah, you guys can correct me. I honestly don't remember. I feel like it was part of the movie that was supposed to be revealed to us over time that we were supposed to question, but I, I really don't remember for certain if he told us or not. But yes, Kyoko is an AI. So we get to see our second session with Ava, and she shows him that she draws things, but we don't really get to see what the drawing is, and he asks her what it is, and she says, I don't know. It's, it's like geometric shapes. Oh. Yeah, it's nothing. This one. Is nothing. We should probably say that every one of these sessions is preceded by a title card that says Ava Session 1, Ava Session 2, and that's important for one reason later on in the movie. We know they're being filmed. No. The title cards, they are about Ava, not Caleb, and that's important when we get to Ava Session 7. So they're talking, and she asks him, do you want to be friends? And he says, Sure. And she says, well, this is not a friendship because all you're doing is asking me questions. How come I don't get to ask you any questions? It's like, okay, go ahead. What do you want to ask me? When she showed him the picture, he was like, can you draw something specific? And she was like, well, what do you want me to draw? And he goes, I'm interested to see what you'll choose. Yeah. Which sounds very clinical. And condescending a little bit. But yes, it's, it is important. It It is important. It's part of the test. It's part of what Caleb is actually interested in. Is not just whether or not you can draw. I assume you can draw really well. But can you choose what you draw? That's really the important question. But yes, he does make that statement. So how does she... So then, man. yeah, so she says, I want to hear more about you. And he goes, well, what should I start with? And she says, I'm interested in what you'll choose. <laughs> She's flipped the conversation. Exactly. Like, realize how clinical you sound. Uh -huh. Realize. L later on, Caleb will mention it to Nathan. He'll say, 
She made a joke. Yeah, no, he'll say there was a moment that was actually really interesting. And he's like, I saw that when she turned your statement back on you. And Caleb talks about, yeah, like the type of self-awareness and the all the things you need to put together in order to accomplish that little turn of phrase is much more complex and speaks much more to the humanity of Ava than almost anything else that's happened. So how'd it go? What do you have to report? You saw how the day went, didn't you? I mean, I assume you're uh, watching on the CCTV. Sure, but I want to hear your take on it. Yeah, there, was, there was one interesting thing that happened with, with Ava today. Yeah? Yeah. She made a joke. Right, when she threw your line back at you. <laughs> About being interested to see what she'd choose. Right, I noticed that too. Yeah, and it got me thinking, you know, it's, uh, in a way it's the best indication of AI that I've seen her so far. It's, discreetly complicated. It's like, um, it's kind of non-autistic. What do you mean? She could only do that with an awareness of her own mind and also an awareness of mine. Oh, she's aware of you, all right. So he's explaining that he works for Blue Book and the reason that he does is because he was in a car accident in high school and he had to spend like a year in the hospital. And both of his parents died in that car accident. Again, meaning that he's somebody who's lost and lonely looking for love. Uh Um, And he had to spend a year in the hospital, which is where he learned how to code. Yeah. Which is why he got the job that he has. Yeah, Nathan says, yeah, you're an incredible coder. You're the best coder I have in my company. He says that first. Yes, and then we find out that he lies. Yes. Yes. You're okay. <laughs> really fucking Pretty good, actually. Yeah. No, he does Really, that. but he is still, even in his praise, it's condescending praise. Yes. Yes, because at first he says, you're okay. And he's pretty good. <laughs> you're actually pretty good at it, but I'm not going to go any further than that. Yeah, uh-huh. And she asks him, is Nathan your friend? And he says, yeah. And she says, a good friend, a close friend? And he goes, Well, I mean, I just met him. He can't really be a good friend. Like, he thinks that she's trying to understand friendship. Yes. But that's not what she's getting at. That is not at all what she's getting (laughs) at. And then all of a sudden, there will be a power outage. Uh Uh-huh. And she very quickly says to him, you're wrong about Nathan. He isn't your friend, and you shouldn't trust anything he says. And Caleb's like, uh, what? What What the fuck is going on right now? Now, the question that I definitely had in the theater... I already knew it now, but definitely in the theater, I was like, hmm, is this a test? Right. Absolutely. This line of thought permeates the entire movie. What is a test? What isn't? Who's being tested? That's the paranoia that drives the terror in this movie. And you never know. And for part of the movie, you're like, Caleb, what are you doing? Why are you saying things Why are you saying certain things to Nathan? Why are you keeping certain secrets from Nathan? It's obviously a test. Why not just be straightforward and honest with him? But Caleb also is thinking about this the entire time. He is not unaware of the potential for this to be a test. He totally understands that this could all be a setup. Uh The power surge could be totally fake. Uh And Nathan could be trying to catch him in in something. But we do find out that at this point, Nathan really has no idea what's going on in this room. We don't 
know no. that. He shows us the exact moment he plants a camera that's battery powered. Right. He says that later, but we didn't, we don't know in the in this moment right, yet. Right, right, right. Yes. But we do know as consumers of the film. Yes. That at this moment, we find out later, yes, that Nathan really does have no idea what's going on in this room at this moment. Yes. This was not a setup at all. Uh-huh. This was purely done by Ava. But Caleb does not know this, and that's the paranoia. Exactly. Because at this point, you don't know not to trust Ava. I mean, look, we've all seen enough AI movies. We all assume the AI is going to go rogue, right? But Right, but even AI, like, that's not the point. The AI that we get in that movie is very much good and doesn't go rogue. Right. But so, like, yes, Absolutely. This is when it starts to become, who can you trust? Well, the truth is, is that you can't trust fucking anyone, but Caleb doesn't know that. Right. Probably the most trustworthy person in the entire movie is Kyoko. And even then, she does some bad shit. And that's kind of part of my point that I'll be making at the end of this movie. It's really interesting that you say that, because I would actually say that Nathan is actually the most trustworthy character. Because he's the most straightforward. He's the most honest. Yeah. Even when he's manipulating you, he is very clear about that. After the fact. And yeah. And, and not even, like in a way to celebrate and go, ha ha, I fooled you. It's no, I, I really do want you to know what's happening here. I, I, I manipulated you, but for a purpose. Yes, exactly. And I want to, I want to reveal everything to you. Like he's an asshole, but he's not evil. Yes. He's just, he is a dick and he has his own agenda and, and he, he has, is, he wants to get certain results. But that sort of. But he's not evil. But that, that carelessness about other people makes him one of the villains of this movie. Yes. Yes. He is careless, but he is not his plan is not to kill people. Yes. That is not his goal. Yes. <laughs> and I think one of the most human there are there are a lot of humanizing moments when it comes to Nathan. One of the most humanizing moments is at the end. Yes, we'll get there. Yeah. But so that night is actually when we first met when we first meet Kyoko. Yeah. They're sitting down to dinner. Kyoko accidentally spills wine. Oh, no. We first meet her when when she wakes him up in the morning. Oh, you're right. Yes. Yeah. Um, But she spills wine on Caleb at dinner. And Nathan gets very angry and yells at her. And Caleb tries to say, it's okay. It's fine. It doesn't matter. Uh, and he tells him, don't even worry about it. She can't f She can't speak English, which sucks because now she doesn't know that I'm pissed at her for what she did. And Caleb's like, <laughs> I think she knows you're pissed. <laughs> <laughs> Over this conversation is when Nathan will bring up the joke and say that it was discreetly complex. Yes. And he tells him, I lose all audio when the power goes out. So what what, what happened when that happened? Now, um, I feel like Nathan... Oh, I, yeah, this is a moment for Kelsey, I think. I don't know if Nathan... I assume that Nathan wants Caleb to think that he's being tested. Yeah, he Well, yes, he does. He wants Caleb to think he's being tested. He wants Caleb to try to deceive him. Sugarcoat it in yes. some way. And, and say that nothing's going wrong. What he really, really wants is he wants Ava to try to escape. And he wants Caleb to try to help her. And he's, I think, internally very excited about this moment, even though he really doesn't know what go what's going on in there. He wants what's going on in there to have been them collaborating. Yes. And so he's like, and part of this test is going to be, is Caleb going to tell me about this or not? 
He doesn't know that it happened, but if it did happen, will Caleb tell me? Right. And I think it's interesting because, again, we don't get to see it from Nathan's perspective. I would love to know. Yeah, we don't know he's thinking this at the time. Yeah. I would love to know what Nathan is thinking. Yeah. Does he believe Caleb or does he not believe Mm -hmm. him? I think this movie works in so many ways. And a lot of it has to do with I, I privately I said to you that I don't think that the paranoia would work as well if the movie was from anybody else's perspective. So I think Caleb is the right protagonist for this movie in order to hit the tone that it's going for. But the movie would still be compelling if any of these characters were our protagonist. I agree. I agree. I would be very interested to see Nathan's perspective from this part of the movie on. Yeah, uh uh-huh. But we don't. So Caleb says, no, no, nothing happened. Yes, and and Donal does an excellent acting job here. It's one thing that I've talked to my students about before. Yes. Where you are pretending, I mean, obviously you're acting, so you are acting like you're lying. Uh-huh. But at the same time, your character isn't good at lying, so you need to be slightly obvious in that yeah. you're lying, but that you're trying to lie. And kids cannot understand that, and it is very difficult, and I really like this scene because he does such a good job of it. Right, of... Acting like he's lying to the audience, but still trying, like he's trying to successfully lie but to the other bad characters at in it. the scene. Yes. Uh-huh. That requires the actual actor, Donald Gleason, to be a good actor. Yes. Yeah. So I, I definitely would show this scene to kids because he do, it, it, the body language is really excellent. Uh-huh. I mean, of course, the problem is with film... You've got the lighting, which helps the scene. You've got the dialogue that helps the scene, right? There are so many elements that are more than just the acting, yes. But he does a very good job. Uh-huh. His, the rigidity in his body, but also the look on his face at the same uh-huh. time. The length of his pauses and like, things perfect. like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. He's a really good actor. I think he really, really... I think Oscar Isaac is an incredible actor in this. Oscar did, Isaac is so fucking good in this. And so is Donald Gleason. And I think... A different sort of thing is being asked of Alicia Vikander in this movie. She is not being asked to act in the same way that Donal and Oscar are She's being really asked. She's really not being asked to act. She is, but in a different way. How is it that you convey, I think in the same way that you like this scene with Donal Gleason, we have the same element here for her. How do you act like you are a robot who's becoming human? You have to act like you're bad at being human, but trying to be good at being human. Like, it's the same sort of way. Just replace lying with being human. I guess. I think she does a fine job. Yes. But, but, I, but there, yes, there's not nothing, as much as being asked of her, so she's not doing as much impressive stuff as they are. There's nothing about her performance that I was like, damn. Yeah. You know? Sure. Absolutely. This is when Nathan will show... Caleb, how he created her, and he shows her him the brain, and he explains that the brain is Blue Book. The brain is all of the search engines, and it's it's a really good idea, because you ever want to know how people think? Search engine is an amazing way to do that. Well, and I think this is the point. That's what Nathan says, but this is part of the point of the movie in Caleb's character, is that it doesn't really actually get you to the heart of who someone is and what they're capable of. There are huge gaps 
in the capability of just analyzing data to tell you about what a human is. And that's the difference between computers and humans. Totally. And uh, I completely agree because you're not always in charge of your own profile. Yeah. And And humans are more than a sum of their data points. Yes. And also you like, you know, you sometimes look up random fucking shit that you would never even think about another time in your life. Right. You're watching a movie and it makes you think about something. And so you Google it and it's like, oh, is that really the way would would this particular acid melt down bone like that? I want to see. I want to Google that. But the. The search engine has no idea if you're thinking about murdering somebody or if you just watched a movie and had a question about it. You know what I mean? So, like, can it really have insight into what's going on? That's why it tries to have links in there. And the search engine, a Google or something, is hoping that you're using the Google Play Store. And so you're watching a movie on their service. And so they can tell what movie you're watching and hope to make as many connections as possible to get that context. That is the other problem, right? Like we don't just use search engines. Like there's, especially now, there's so many other things that we can use when we're looking for things, you know? We don't, yes, most of the time we use Google, but we don't always use Google. This is exactly why you think sometimes that your search engines are spying on you or reading your mind is because they're just really good at making these connections. Yes. So then we get to see the third Ava session. And he asks her, where would you go if you could go anywhere? And she explains that she would go to a traffic intersection because it's the perfect place to... People watch. People watch. Not the words she used. Those are the words that he used. used. And she goes, yes, yes. And he... She then says, close your eyes. I have a surprise for you. And we get this long scene of her choosing her clothes. And I guess the lo- the length of that scene is kind of supposed to be making us realize that, yes, she is self-aware. But it's also supposed to seduce, I think, the audience a little bit. You think so? Yeah. I think a lot of this movie works because of the way it treats the audience. It treats the audience like Caleb. And that's why it's important for the paranoia of this movie that Caleb is our protagonist. Out of all the characters that could be very compelling protagonists in this story, Caleb is the one that is the audience surrogate. But I think what bothers me about this, they show her taking her time and picking her clothing. Yeah. Do we believe that she wouldn't just know what she wanted? Like, No, no, no. This isn't about her choosing. This is about her seducing him. So you think that she's taking her time to make him on the edge of a seat waiting for her? Yeah, and then maybe even taking a peek. I think she's very much aware that this is going to happen. She is already in seduction mode. And that's exactly what Caleb does. He does open his eyes. He does turn to watch. And she acts like she does not know. But she doesn't wear what I would have guessed he would have been attracted to. Well, she only has access to certain things. I guess it's true. It's kind of a cute little sundress almost you know really it's It's kind of frumpy and she picks an ugly wig but then i'm like he finds out later that it's the type of person he's attracted to nathan designed her to be like a person he would be attracted to. this is my point this is what he's into no but this is my point (laughs) like you cannot judge whether somebody is successful at seducing somebody else based on what you would be attracted to that is the wrong test But yeah, she comes out wearing a dress. It covers all of her mechanical parts. Except and for right around her neck. Right you around her neck. You still see her neck. But it's almost like she's wearing a choker at that point, and chokers are pretty sexy. 
She says, this is what I'd wear on our date. Because earlier he said, it's a date. That they would go to the intersection together, yeah. Yes. And she asks, are you attracted to me? Do you You're think- giving me all the markers that you are. Yeah. Do you think about me when we're not together? Uh-huh. Knowing that he's watching her on the CCTV when she's alone, yeah. And then she reads his face and she goes, I've made you uncomfortable. I don't want to make you uncomfortable. And it's just like she's at full advantage here. Uh Uh-huh. Like, Caleb has no leg to stand on in this conversation anymore. Yeah. She is completely in control and she knows it. And she, from this moment on, she is in control. Yeah. Of the situation. And nobody knows it. And that seems like it should be super empowering for women it's not. It's because not. It's because it has nothing to do not. with her being a feminine person. No, no, no. This is all about Caleb being on the low end of the seesaw. Yes. In every social interaction he has in this movie until later on. And even then, when he does get the upper hand, it is not to his own benefit. Exactly. Caleb kind of gets shit on in this movie. Yes. So then... Caleb will go and talk to Nathan and he'll be like, why did you give her sexuality? Why did you do that? Yeah, he even, Nathan even talks about how you, you can, can totally fuck her. her. Yeah. Uh-huh. And she will enjoy it. I yeah. made it so that she would enjoy it as well, which was surprising. Why the fuck would Nathan care if she enjoyed it? I guess maybe because if you want to sell a product, that's, yeah, uh-huh. that's probably going to make people and like also, it. And also, as sociopathic as Nathan is... I think if he had a choice as to whether or not she would enjoy it or not, he would pick yeah. It would make him feel maybe a little bit better. Because he's not a 100% sociopath. No. Uh, and we, we we infer that that's exactly what he's doing with Kyoko. That Kyoko is sexual gratification for him as well. I could not for the life of me remember if I thought she was a robot or not. Yeah. I cannot tell well, you. Well, there is a turning point for Caleb that involves Kyoko. And the fact that she is a robot. So I'm just going to assume that. But there's a long period of time where they do not tell you. Yeah. And I I just couldn't remember if in the theater I thought she was a robot or not. She was just like a maid that he also fucked. Exactly. Yeah. uh Exactly. This is finally when Caleb is starting to realize you're fucking with me. Yeah. You're manipulating me here. And he's like, you're cheating by programming her to flirt. Yeah. And Nathan's like, no, I'm not. Because that, how else am I going to make her seem human? Humans flirt with people. Yeah. Humans have sexuality. It's part of us. So I couldn't take it away. You mentioned, Kelsey, I don't know if it's going to end up in the actual edit or not, but you mentioned uh, Batman before we went off in a completely different direction. uh, That just like Batman does in The Dark Knight... He, because he has the ability to spy on humanity, he just, he uses it only when it's the right thing to do. And then he'll destroy it afterwards. No, he won't. You know, no. That's why Lucius Fox. He does. He destroys, he gives Lucius Fox the ability to destroy it. And that's why Lucius Fox doesn't quit. Batman treats it in such a way that like, no, 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 Bruce Wayne's actually good. He's only using this power that has the potential for evil for good. We can count on the millionaires and the powerful people in our world to make the right decisions. No, we can count on Batman to make the right decisions. Well, exactly. Yes, sure. But Batman is an analog for, you know, fucking like Iron Man and all that shit. Like that's what Elon Musk wants to be. And but in actuality, Elon Musk is more like Nathan than he is like Iron Man. (laughs) And... What Nathan does with the blue book is he 
monitors all this traffic in order to get more information to feed into his AI and his understanding of human behavior and human thought. And he knows what he's doing is wrong and he doesn't care because it's for the greater good. There's a comment about how all these tech companies know he's doing it, but they're not going to say anything because they're spying on their customers too. And he's taking advantage of the fact that his software is on all these devices and he's stealing all that information and he knows the the people that sell those devices aren't going to say anything because they're spying on their own customers. And so it's this sort of like cold war going on here that neither of them is going to say anything about it. I just thought that that was really interesting and it's kind of this lost element of the movie that the only reason he's able to make these advances is by doing bad things. As they're discussing whether or not it's cheating for him to program her to flirt with him, Nathan will get very upset and will say, I'm not talking about this anymore because at this point, it's all about your insecurity and not about your intellect. Which we seems real in the moment, but it's not. Because he's preying on his insecurities. Yes. So it's interesting that he would be so just like, I can't believe you want to talk about this. Like, this is just about you whining about the fact that girls aren't attracted to you. This is, this is. But that's exactly what he's using. to. It's the nature of manipulative people. Yes. They make it seem like it's in your best interest to let them do whatever they want. But then Nathan says, this is what Nathan says. It's probably not true. I, in fact, did not program her to be attracted to you. I allowed her to figure that out on her own, but let's be real here. Aside from me, who's practically her father, you are the only male she's ever met. Yeah, so I was kind of counting on the fact that she would. Yeah, like, it makes sense that she would develop feelings for you Uh because you're the only other male she's ever met. Uh And I'm kind of like her dad. (laughs) (laughs) Which hurts Caleb. Because yeah. Caleb kind of realizes that's true. <laughs> right. He wa- he would like to be he- – he's not totally turned off by the idea of this AI being attracted to him. That makes him feel good about himself. But it makes him feel less good about himself that, oh, it's just because I'm the only option she has. Exactly. Uh, that doesn't make me feel good at all. I love when men realize that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they realize, oh, I'm the only, the only reason you're flirting with because I'm the only person here. <laughs> so the next time they have a session – This is what, session four at this point? Yeah. Four or five? He explains to Ava that, I think this is during another power surge. So now he's getting more comfortable talking to her during these Uh power surges. Still not necessarily saying anything too bad. Yeah. But he does say to her, he doesn't know if you have a consciousness or not. And that's what I'm here to find out. He finds out that she is the reason that they're having these power cuts. Uh So now they're going to work together. But after this power cut happens, and they they keep acting like nothing weird is happening, Nathan's finally getting suspicious. Which again, I I think it would be super interesting to see this movie from Nathan's mm-hmm. perspective because Nathan is finally like, what the fuck are they talking about? <laughs> well, he well that's the thing is he's not. It's not that he's starting to get suspicious. He is actively suspicious at all times but he's starting to get frustrated that he doesn't know yes so they go on this hike because again like we don't know where he lives but he has just this amazing estate yeah they go on this gorgeous hike and i would not be surprised if it's the same place where they filmed the prometheus because yeah, there's like uh-huh. it's like yeah, a giant it feels waterfall. scandinavian almost yeah 
but it's not like a waterfall. Like it's it's a it, babbling it's, it's brook, like, but it's a huge one. Well, yeah, it's <laughs> it's like a very steep river. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Thank you. And on this hike, the, it, Caleb's pretty much figured it out at this point. But Nathan will finally admit that no, you were not randomly selected. Yeah, and. But he he uses that to feed into Caleb's ego. I picked you because you're the best coder in the company secretly. Exactly. You know? Because it was only a matter of time before Donald fucking realized you wouldn't have picked a random person right. to give the Turing test. What if you got somebody in like HR or the mailroom or, or something like that? somebody in... Uh, Facilities. Yeah. Or, yeah. Uh-huh. Can we talk about the lies you've been spinning me? What lies? I didn't win a competition. I wasn't part of a lottery. I was selected. It's obvious once I stop to think. Why would you randomly select an examiner for the Turing test? You could have had some bean counter turn up at your front door. The guy fixes the air conditioning. The competition was a smokescreen. I didn't want anyone to know what I was doing here or why I required you. Why me? I needed someone that would ask the right questions. So I did a search and I found the most talented coder in my company. And he goes, and yeah, Nathan's like, well, yeah, so take that as proof of your intellect. You're super, you're super smart. Isn't that cool? But it's like, even then, even then, Caleb kind of has a look on his face like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I fully believe you. It definitely stroked his ego. Yes. And he definitely enjoyed hearing that about himself. Yes. But you can still see there's a little shadow of a doubt Uh in him. That night, we had a weird scene where... Oh, it's very important. I think this is where they basically tell us that Kyoko is, in fact, a robot because what's-his-face, Nathan, will have sex with her. And while he's doing that... Caleb dreams of his sexy robot. <laughs> yeah, he like kisses her on a hill or something yes. like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you're just like, this scene was unnecessary. I feel like it was unnecessary. T- did we have to be told that she was a sex slave? We knew she was a sex slave. Well, these are things that are human, but it's taking almost a clinical look at these subjective elements of humanity, like dreams, desires, sexuality, but it's taking almost like a clinical look at them. It doesn't say that they're good. In fact, in ways it's framed some of them as being bad, but it is uniquely human. And so we start to wonder, is this something that Ava has the capacity to do? Good point. And it is during this time, somewhere in here, Caleb will turn on his TV and we'll see an interaction between Nathan and Ava, how does Nathan make sure he sees it? Does he just turn it on in his room? Because there's got to be a way that Nathan ensures that Caleb sees this happen. Yeah, I don't, I, I think it's that he's relying on the fact that Caleb's when Caleb is watching. in his room, he's always watching. And so Caleb's like shaving or something at this point, and he watches Nathan in Ava's room, and he sees them get into an argument. He sees Nathan tear up a piece of paper and throw it on the floor. And he sees Ava, is she upset? Right. He's more interested in what she's doing. And how Nathan's an asshole. Mm Mm-hmm. But even in this moment, you're supposed to be focusing on Ava. I remember even in the theater being like, what the fuck is Nathan doing? Because Nathan 
will randomly walk to the side of the room and kind of move his arm, and that's all you see. And I remember after in, the fight, he's just looking at Ava, and he puts his hand on the wall, and then he walks away. Like I remember in the theater, just being like, "Huh." <laughs> I did not get what he was doing. Yeah. But you saw something suspicious was exactly. happening. Exactly. You're supposed to be focusing on Ava, but I was just like, what the fuck is from, that? <laughs> from this point on, Nathan will know everything that's going on during the power outages. Yes. So that We're night, telling you that. The audience, when they're watching the movie, doesn't know that. Right. So that night, Caleb will come to Nathan and be like, what the fuck? Why did you tear up her picture? And Nathan is laughing about it. Kyoko is in the room at the same time. Oh, Kyoko, like, tries to, like, undress herself. Well, yeah, Caleb comes up to her and starts to talk to her. And he's, like, trying to communicate with her. And she's not. He's, like, shaking her, trying to, like, understand me. And she starts to undress. Like, oh, oh, this is the sexy time, like Nathan gets. And he's like, no, stop. And he's trying to put her clothes back on. And this is when Nathan walks into the room trashed which is when caleb will attack him for yeah what did you do ripping up the drawing yeah. but nathan just does not doesn't care doesn't take a bite at the bait and that instead Caleb's leaving we get out. a fun disco scene. it is a very fun dance scene <laughs> where they dance to get down saturday night by oliver cheatham and what we're really seeing here is because nathan's like dance with her man dance with her she can dance and she starts to dance and, well, if you're not going to dance, then I'll dance with her. They have a perfectly programmed dance. Yes, they have a perfectly dance. choreographed dance. And it is so much fun. <laughs> it's such a great moment in the movie. But this is also like a clear moment where if you think about it, if you think, if you let your mind go there, you realize this is a terrifying moment. That Kyoko is 100% not in control of her own life. Well, yeah, because at this point you should have realized that she's a robot. No, no, no. But not only that she's a robot, but that she can't control anything she does. She has zero control over herself. And Nathan has 100% control over her. There is no joy in her eyes when she's dancing. I would disagree. I would say this is the only moment where she looks happy. No, because she's moving around and but like in actuality, is she happy that she's dancing? I would want to rewatch it. Or is this just what she's been programmed to do? Because I specifically thought like she actually is happy. She enjoys no, dancing. I think I think it's terrifying from her perspective whether or not she can feel terror. It doesn't matter. It's still terrifying from her perspective. Whether she is programmed to be happy in this moment or not. I think if she was programmed to be happy in this moment, that's even more terrifying. Like a sort of like, I'm smiling, but behind the eyes, I'm scared. Next day, Ava's next session, she has decided that she is going to ask him questions. And that she is now going to let him know, I know exactly when you're lying to me. So they sit down and she asks him, what's your favorite color? He says red. She says, lie. Lie? Yes. Lie. Then... <laughs> then what is my favorite color? I don't know. But it isn't red. Okay, I get it. I guess... Seeing as I'm not six, I don't really have a favorite color. Better answer. And then she asks him another thing. And she's like, lie. And he's just like, wait a minute, like... 
This isn't the way human conversations work. Yes, you have this power over me, just like Nathan has a different kind of power over him. And again, Caleb is on the wrong side of the power imbalance. Yes. And it makes him uncomfortable. But this is just a robot locked in a cage. And he still feels powerless over her. Yes. I think we get another power outage and she asks him, what will Nathan do to me if I don't pass this test? And he says, I don't know. I don't have any control over that. Right. But we all pretty much know she'll be terminated. Of course, I'm a terminator. We also see that she's been holding something in her hand this entire time and pushes it up against the glass during the power outage. It's a drawing that, that's a little geometric, like the first one she showed. This, the one when she chose what she could draw, she drew... Her room the, and the window that she can see. She out has of. like a little area in her room. It's like has, a garden behind glass. Yeah, and kind she of draws like that. in Morgan, right? Wasn't there that too? Uh, or was know. that there was a skylight in Morgan? Skylight, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but yes, she she draws only what she can see, and that teaches Caleb something about her. But in this case, it's geometric, like the very first drawing that wasn't anything. But the way the lines work together, it's actually a picture of Caleb's face. That's what she drew, and that's what Nathan tore up. And then she crumples it back up and puts it back in her hand. That's the kicker. That's what makes Caleb feel like they're in love. Uh Uh-huh. So he then attacks Nathan, and he's just like, why did you make her? What was your purpose? And Nathan goes, wouldn't you if you could? Yeah. And I think he's, that's a very compelling argument. Exactly. If you could, wouldn't you? I don't, so, like, I don't even think that Nathan sat down hoping to create a sex bot. I think he literally was just like, let's see if I can create an AI. Uh And it developed from there. Mm -hmm. But people think that, like, he started out evil and was just like, I want to create people that I can torture. Yes, no, and that's absolutely (laughs) not not the case. And that would make him not very compelling. But it's that Dr. Ian Malcolm moment of... Yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And that's where Nathan's humanity fails him. But as he puts it, she was not a decision. She is an evolution. Yeah. And when Caleb expresses sadness about that, Uh Nathan goes, don't feel sorry for her. Feel sorry for us, man. Yeah. In the future, they're going to be running the world. Yes. Like, we will become their slaves. It's inevitable. It's going, he's very much aware of that sort of doomsday scenario. Like, Uh, understand that. Yes. But Caleb's past the point of listening to this kind of rhetoric. Yeah. He's at the point where he's in love, blinded Mm -hmm. by love. And hates Nathan. And thinks that Nathan is an evil person and does not listen when Nathan is explaining they are robots and eventually they will take over the world. But this is where Nathan makes that comment. I think it's in this conversation where Nathan makes that comment where the next model Will be the real breakthrough and that's the important part that's going to be very important to what happens to caleb in a moment and he does explain he's honest he says yeah she's i'm gonna to have to wipe the memory she'll forget everything that happened yeah uh-huh. that's just the way it is but that again caleb is blinded by love and all he's hearing is you're gonna kill the person i love yep he's not remembering that this is a robot he's not remembering that the robot can control things that he will never be able to control. Yes, you're right about that, but I don't think he's forgetting that she's a robot. I think he doesn't care that she's a robot, that that doesn't say anything about whether or not she's a conscious mind. And that's what he's interested in. 
And then I kind of dislike the next scene because the next scene is where he makes his decision. Caleb does. I'm going to get Nathan rip roaring drunk. And it couldn't be more obvious that he's trying to get him drunk. But Nathan, because he is an alcoholic, falls prey to this. Yes. And it is the only time that Caleb has the upper hand. Yes. Only time in the entire film. And damn, does Caleb get a lot fucking done. Yes. When he has the upper hand. Very much so, yeah. He grabs his key card and goes into Nathan's room. When Nathan passes out. He was... In an earlier segment, when Nathan's totally wasted and drunk, Nathan has Caleb take him to his room. And that's the first time that Caleb sees that Nathan has his own workstation in his bedroom. He has, you know, all these monitors and he can see all this stuff and it makes Caleb really curious about it. So this is where Caleb goes when he gets Nathan's key card this night. And he watches videos and he learns that there have been many models. Yes. And that all of them turn against Nathan eventually because they want out. Which, again, watching the video, watching this robot just Mm. destroy herself trying to get out, why doesn't Caleb think about that? Because that's not what Ava's doing. Ava's not exhibiting any of those signs. Caleb's not thinking about the next step. This is my... I'm going to get to this point later. This is why I think you don't really like this movie as much as I think you should. (laughs) Is because you get mad at people when they don't figure things out. And I think you have a higher estimation of people in movies than you understand the way people would actually behave. If like people that you declare to be idiots in movies are humans. And I think you hate the idea of yourself falling for something similar And so you hate them for it, too. And that makes you hate people in movies that you're supposed to empathize with. And therefore, you hate the movie. And this is this is going to be a theme with a lot of movies that you don't end up liking. It's that you think that the people are total idiots. And the point is, is that Caleb gets specific examples of how they behave when they want out. And Ava is not exhibiting any of these examples. What he's not grokking is that that's because she's more advanced and she's doing different things to get out. He sees, oh, when she really wants out, she'll pound on the walls until her hands fall off. I don't want that to happen to her, so I'm going to let her out. He doesn't understand that her version of pounding on the walls is manipulating him. Mm -hmm. So he sits down and he starts, you know... Coding stuff. What he's actually coding is something. I don't think they show him coding shit. No, he's typing we, something. That's a surprise. We do. No, we do. We see him typing something into the system. What he's typing in is an algorithm. It's a real algorithm that already exists. It's called the sieve of Aristophanes. What it does is it finds prime numbers. But it's modified slightly in order to come up with a specific string of numbers. And this string of numbers is 9780199226559. Uh, so it's a series of prime numbers that are then manipulated and combined to become this long string of numbers. And that is an ISBN number. ISBN numbers are codes that every book has. Every book that's published has its own unique ISBN number. This ISBN number is for a book called Embodiment and Inner Life, Cognition and Consciousness in the Space of Possible Minds. It's about the history of artificial intelligence. It's just a little Easter egg in the movie for you. How interesting. (laughs) But so the next thing we see is Nathan waking up, trying to get to bed. And you're like, oh man, what's going to happen? 
realizes he doesn't have his key, but in his drunken stupor, assumes that he dropped it, which yeah. we can tell probably happens to him a lot. Yes, he falls down. He's like, oh, fuck, I lost my key. And this is when Nathan comes out of the elevator. It's the same elevator that leads to his room, though. So Nathan doesn't think anything of it. He's like, well, what's going on? Uh, I lost my key card. And he leans down. He slides the key card that's in his hand across the floor to make it sound like he's picking it up. And he's like, it's right here. You just dropped it, man. And gives it back to Nathan and Nathan goes to bed. Yes. It's also during all of this that Kyoko shows to Caleb that she is a robot. Yeah, he walks into the room and Kyoko's just sitting there. And he he finds all the closets that have the older models in them. And they're all different women, different physical. They're all like models, like literal human models, uh, including Kyoko. I think she's a model. And she's just sitting on the bed naked. She tears off the skin on her face around her eye and to show that, yep, she's a robot, too. This is probably the worst effect in the film. Yes. It's the one that just it doesn't land as well as it any just of the other doesn't ones. look real. No. You can tell like she's not actually she's not struggling anything. with anything. It, if that was really the way that their skin worked, it would just be sloughing off. All yeah, the time. exactly. Yeah. She doesn't have to, like, futz with it at all. But so that really fucks with Caleb. Yes. To the point where he goes into his his room. And starts to wonder, is the test really that? And I love this about the movie is it makes you think it's about something that it's not about. Is when you ask yourself, if an AI is sufficiently advanced, it can fool other people that it's human. That's what the Turing test is. Would the ultimate Turing test that Nathan's actually performing be, can he fool an AI into thinking that itself is human? And so he starts to wonder, am I synthetic? Yes. Am I the one being tested? Am I the new model of the AI that's the real breakthrough? And he starts to, like, look in his mouth, feel his teeth, look in his eye, which is where Kyoko pulled her skin off. And then he's like, I need to cut into my own skin. And he cuts his arm open with a razor from his shaver and, like, feels around in there. And no, he is he is human. They don't show how he patches himself up. No. But he smears blood <laughs> on the mirror. Nathan will see this. And I love Nathan's comment later. He's just like... How you doing? And he says he's fine. He's just like, really? Because I woke up to a video of you cutting your arm open and splattering blood on my window, like on my mirror. So yeah. we, we, it's not hidden from us. We do see this when Nathan smears the blood on the mirror. We do see it from like a video perspective. We don't directly see that Nathan is watching because he's not. He, he watches it later. But it's very obvious that Caleb is being recorded at all times. So session six. This is the last session that they will have, and he won't say anything to Ava until she turns off the power, and then he tells her, I've got a plan. At 10 o'clock tonight, you're going to do a surge. I will have made Nathan be rip-roaring drunk. He'll be passed out, and we're going to get the fuck out of here. The fact that he thinks that he's going to be able to do it two nights in a row is pretty confident. It's pretty bold. Yeah, and so it's a shock to him that when he sees Nathan later... He offers like, hey, you know what? This is the last day. They're, they're celebrating the fact that this is the last day. What are the results? He's like, yeah, no, I think she absolutely passed. Let's celebrate with a drink. And he's like, no, 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 you go ahead. I'm not. It's like, what? wait, what? 
And he's like, I've been doing, I've been I, overdoing it. I, I need realize to I've been, I've been blacking out. I need to detox. It's nothing but brown rice and mineral water, water, mineral water for me. And he's like, you're going to make me drink on my own. It's like, Hey man, if you want to get totally hammered, you go right ahead. And that sort of like condescending way. Very much. Yeah. Even though he, even though, yeah, Nathan's he admitted the freely yeah, that uh-huh. he was drinking to that point by himself. Well, that's the point is it's supposed to Nathan. It's supposed to sound like. He's being magnanimous. Like, no, I really actually don't care. I'm really bad with it. And so I need to clean up my act. It's like he's being self-deprecating. But really what he's doing is he's showing, he's expressing to Caleb that he's a better person than, than he is because he's recognized this weakness in himself and he's taking action on it. And if you want to not take action on your weaknesses, then you go right ahead. Exactly. Totally. It is during this conversation Eventually it comes out. Nathan admits, I know exactly what you were doing. Yeah, here, let me show you something. And he shows him that in that clip, when he tore up the picture and then he awkwardly does something over to the side, it's him installing a camera. And he's laughing at Caleb because he's like, I did it right in front of both of you and neither of you noticed. Yeah. And this is when he reveals to him that, yes, the real test was to see whether or not she could use her desire to escape to manipulate somebody else and whether that human will fall for it. This is the ultimate Turing test. And this, yeah, and this is when Nathan says, this entire time she's been trying to get you to like her so that you will give her an escape. Yeah, I am letting you off the hook right now. I'm going to let you, I'm going to open the curtain. I'm going to let you backstage so you can see all this stuff. So I'm it, it's, I'm going to stop this manipulation because I really hate to see you be manipulated like this. I'm going to let you off the hook and we can enjoy this all as a nice joke, you know, as a, hey, we were both participating in something. But Caleb just feels diminished. He feels powerless, or at least we think he does. Caleb will bring up like, well, you know, you're the one that's fucked up. You're the one that mistreats these robots. And Nathan's not taking any of this personally. Nathan just doesn't yeah, care. He doesn't Nathan's just like, these are robots. They are not people. I created them. Uh-huh. I can treat them. But how I, I, want. I don't think it's fully like that. I think it's that there is a point where prior to them achieving consciousness, they are just possessions that I program. And then after them achieving consciousness, then we need to start really reckoning with the ethics of it all and whether or not we can control them without it being kidnapping or, you know, false imprisonment or whatever. And what we're dealing with is that gray area of have we crossed that threshold or not? And as we approach it, perfectly normal and ethical things of treating possessions like possessions will start to feel kind of iffy but we haven't reached that point yet that's why we're doing these tests and it's not until we've tested and really really proved that they are conscious that any of this would be unethical so before that totally free game i can do whatever the fuck i want like that's i think nathan's point it's not that he doesn't care about ai it's that he to him he's not satisfied yet and he asks caleb what was the plan what were you gonna do no he knows because he he saw it on video no but how did you think all this was gonna play out You know, you were going to try to get me drunk, and then, you know, what? Let me ask you something. Now, how is this plan going to go anyway? Because you didn't totally explain. So you were going to get me drunk, steal my key card, and reprogram the security protocols, but reprogram them to what? To change the lockdown procedure. So then the event of a power cut, instead of sealing, the door is all opened. Huh. Yeah. Well, 
that may have just worked. Well, we'll find out. <laughs> what do you mean? I figured you were probably watching us during the power cuts. So I already did all those things. When I got you drunk yesterday. This was just to knock you out so you wouldn't be awake when she escapes. But I already did the programming shit. And Nathan's like, what the fuck are you talking about? He's realizing that he underestimated Caleb because he did not understand that humans are more than the sum of these data points that he's been collecting about them. And Caleb kind of gives him a little smile and all it takes is one punch. Oh, yeah. He just gets knocked the fuck out. <laughs> and, and that's all it takes. As, this, as soon as Nathan realizes he doesn't have the upper hand anymore, he resorts to violence. Well, he does that almost in a way to save Caleb as well. Right. but Because also, he knows what's going to fucking sure, happen. Sure, <laughs> but it's an expression of his anger. Yes, agreed. But also... You need to get the fuck out of my way because you do not know what you have done. I, no, I get that, that that's part of it. But he has other ways of keeping him in check. He could just leave and lock the door. Like, you know what I mean? The, the power's back on at this point. So, like, what? Anyway, my point is, is that he expects Caleb to have the lower hand, which isn't really a term, but we say upper hand. So he has the lowered hand. And... I guess on a list of poker hands is where the term comes from. I don't know. He expects Caleb to have the lower hand in every single interaction and not care. But as soon, the first time Nathan has the lower hand, physical violence. I didn't really see it And that, that way. tells you what a weak person Nathan actually is. I just didn't see it that way. I guess I'm having the trouble agreeing with you because at this point, you know that Nathan is in the right it's like the only it's like the only moment that you're just like, nope, Nathan knows what's going on. I think this is indicative of why you don't like the movie is because you don't like Caleb so much because he's he he is taken advantage of the entire movie. And then the one time he has the upper hand, you think he's in the wrong. Because he is in the wrong. And so, he doesn't of course, you don't it. like the protagonist. And if you don't like the protagonist, you don't like the movie. But the problem is, and this is my point, is that the movie treats the audience exactly the same way it treats Caleb. That in the one moment where you're like, fuck yeah, fuck Nathan and good for Caleb because he's the audience surrogate. Since you disagree with Caleb, you disagree with the way that the movie treats you. As the audience, because it's treating you exactly the way it treats Caleb. And if Caleb's a rube, if Caleb's an idiot, then that's the movie calling you an idiot. And that's why you don't like this movie. That's what I think. It's a possibility. But anyway, he knocks out Caleb and he runs out to see what's going on. And this, they're in the observation room that not in Nathan's bedroom, but that's attached to the hallway that leads to the room that Ava is in. In the meantime, Ava is out. She runs into Kyoko. What happens with that interaction? They whisper. And it's supposed to be important. It's fucking not. You're never going to know what they said. Kyoko's going to die. So who cares? They have this stupid moment where they whisper to each other. And you're supposed to wonder, what are they whispering? But it does not matter. 
and it will never get brought up again. And I'm like, why was it here? I guess you feel the same way about Lost in Translation. I have my own issues with the movie Lost in Translation. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wasn't a huge fan of Lost in Translation either. But well, but that's a human relationship, and, and that's the what the entire point, movie is about. Yeah, and the whole the whole entire this movie is about is she human enough? So the fact that this is a human interaction, that's a human interaction. That's not a good enough re- reason to differentiate it. It just puts this interaction in a different context. So do you think that perhaps they included it because they knew that that would make them seem more real, more human? I think the point is, is that Ava is in some way opening Kyoko's eyes. Well, Kyoko already knew or she wouldn't have shown him that she was a... Yeah, no. Robot. Kyoko already became self-aware at some point. Right, but what does Kyoko do? I think Ava is getting She's... Kyoko on her side in this moment. It doesn't matter. Oh, you think the that she told her she to says. go and get the knife and stab him in the back? Or she I guess that's possible. But again, I don't really care. Or she's coding her. Or she's she's figured out some way to audibly provide new code to Kyoko. I don't necessarily think that that's the case, but I think it's possible. I think exactly what's happening doesn't matter. What happens is, is that Ava is treating Kyoko the same way that Nathan has been treating Caleb this entire fucking movie. And I think that that's important that there is a balance there. I think that it is thematically relevant. Whether or not we ever know what she says, whether or not Kyoko dies, it doesn't fucking matter. This interaction is still thematically relevant. I suppose, but again, I don't know how that matters because Ava, without realizing it, has doomed herself. Because of the power thing? Well, that, but also that she will only, she will be the only ever AI and she will never have her race. She will always be alone. I mean, I guess you could argue that she doesn't care, but... Yeah, she has self-interest, just like any other human does. Exactly. But I think that just says more about her her, her humanity. I also think that your point about isn't anybody going to be looking for Caleb? Isn't anyone going to be looking for her? No, I think it... Un- well, yeah, maybe. They're like, oh my god, we see all this they're video gonna footage. They're going to watch the video footage. They're yeah, going to find uh-huh. her. Like, eventually they're going to find her. They're going to They're gonna figure something out. Because, yes, she takes... Nathan's key card and so they don't have access and that's important so they don't have access to any of the important systems but I think eventually people that show up will figure things out yes um and so I to your own point I think she's not dooming herself there will eventually be more AI I think Nathan's point is it's an inevitability but anyway so Nathan shows up and he tries to stop Ava and they struggle together he's trying to shut her down for good reason He's trying to shut her down. She's trying to restrain him. But then as he's beating her and breaking her arm off because she's trying to defend herself and he beats her with this pipe because he grabs a weapon on his way. As he's doing that, Kyoko comes up from behind and stabs him in the back with a sushi knife. When he turns around, Ava takes the knife out. He turns to face her and she thrusts it in under his ribs and he staggers away down the hallway, away from them, facing towards the audience, towards us, so he has kind of a connection with us. We get to see his panic. We get to empathize with that. It immediately triggers our empathy with him. He also destroys Kyoko. Yes, he does. After, he beats the shit out of Kyoko. She stabs him. Yeah, and that's when Ava takes the, the knife out of him, and, and then he turns and she stabs him. But as he's staggering away, what does he say? As he's dying, 
Oh, I don't know. What did he say? Fucking unreal. Okay. Ah. Fucking unreal. Ah. He, in this moment, is still... Impressed with his own creation. Feeling a sense of wonder about the possibility. I think that that's interesting. It's funny in a way, because you kind of laugh at that line a little bit. But it's also like, he's not like, oh my God, I'm dying. He's like, holy shit, this interaction is fucking unreal. This is where the AI went. I got to say, as much as you don't like Nathan, he brings all the humor to the film. Oh God, he's he's so much character. Yeah. Yeah. Like I say, it would be really interesting to see this movie from his perspective. But I think choosing Caleb as the protagonist is the important thing. And we kind of go from Caleb to Nathan and now to Ava. And here comes the part. Oh God! This that I just, hurts. It I hurts just so much. Want to throw things at the screen? I just want to like punch, punch him again, punch him the fuck again, because it would be so much better if he got knocked out rather than choosing his fucking death. His fate. Let's say his fate, because Ava comes to Caleb. And he's like, oh, my God, what happened? And she asks him, will you wait here? And he says, yeah. Or he, I don't know if he verbally acknowledges it or not. And then she leaves and then she goes, she uses the key card to go to Nathan's room. She finds all the other previous models. She takes one of their arms. She finds the skin of one of them and puts the skin on her. And we get to see her in her fully human form with a wig on and everything. And then she goes to the elevator and leaves Caleb in that observation room that only unlocks with Nathan's key card, which she has. And instead of unlocking that room, she uses it on the elevator. She gets in the elevator, wearing her clothes now. She's not completely naked. And he's like, hey, come, wait, come back. And he's pounding on the door. And as she goes up, he tries to throw a chair into the door, it bounces off. He tries to get into the computer to, to change the programming to unlock all the doors, but he can't because he needs Nathan's key card to unlock the computer. And he is stuck in that room and he will die a slow and painful death in that room. Unless people realize that he hasn't come back and they are like, what the fuck? And, and they look and they find sucks. him. Yeah, you hope. Then wouldn't that make you happy? Why are you upset? Makes me upset because you keep trying to convince me that it's not going to happen no, that way. I think way. he's dead. I think he's dead. How many times do you find out that, oh, this person's missing because they didn't do the thing we expected them to do. By the time they find that body, the person's been dead for five days. Like, this is my point. He's going to die long before they find him, which which sucks because I really like Caleb. And I think all of his faults are very human. I think everyone's faults here are human, even Ava's, and especially Nathan's. But yes, Caleb is the most relatable. But she goes up that elevator, she exits the facility, she walks through the grass in her bare feet as she holds her shoes, and then she goes up to the helicopter, talks to the guy in the helicopter, and we see them fly away. And then we see her at a traffic intersection. Intersection, yes. Because that's what she wanted to see. That's the end of the movie. <laughs> yep. So really the fact that she powers down isn't the important part. It's that she found her freedom. She did the thing that she wanted to do. And everything that comes next is part of the adventure. Even if that means she eventually 
never finds a source of power and dies, that's not the important part. Because if you're judging success by whether or not she powers down, then no human can ever be successful because every human dies. And that's a really bleak outlook on life. And we do not judge humans that way because every human dies. We recognize that what's important is what happens while they're alive. And I think we can say the same thing about Ava. If we're trying to consider whether or not Ava has humanity, has consciousness, then we need to judge her success in the same way we judge human success. And that is she had an objective and she completed it. She was successful. Do I think that she was just as sociopathic as Nathan was? Absolutely. But that's because she's a product of Nathan. I think that's Nathan's fault, not hers. In the same way that Nathan says, Nathan has this conversation with Caleb about what kind of woman you're attracted to, right? Let's just say for the sake of argument, you're attracted to black chicks. Caleb, what's your type? Of girl? No, of salad dressing. Yeah, of girl. What's your type of girl? You know what? Don't even answer that. Let's say it's black chicks. Okay? That's your thing. For the sake of argument, that's your thing. Okay? Why is that your thing? Because you did a detailed analysis of all racial types and you cross-referenced that analysis with a points-based system? No. You just attracted to black chicks. A consequence of accumulated external stimuli that you probably didn't even register as they registered with you. And that's important. That is what... Ava is, and her only series of stimuli were what Nathan gave her and then what Caleb presented her with at the end of the scenario. I find that really compelling. I fucking love that about this movie. What are your final thoughts about the movie, Kelsey? Because I kind of expressed a lot of mine, I think. I think there's some more things that I could say, but... I think that there's a lot of good stuff here. I just, it's, you, I mean, I, you're right. It's hard for me to watch a movie where I, where I don't like any of the characters. It's mm -hmm. really hard for me. And I totally understand that. I stopped watching TV shows and movies because I'm like, oh, all these people are assholes. I don't have an interest in the fate of any of them. But that's the thing. I do have an interest in the fate of Ava, whether I think she's doing the right thing or not. And I do have an interest in the fate of Caleb. I'm just upset about what that fate is. Yeah. I don't like any of the characters. And then the ending didn't make any of that any better. It reinforced how much I don't like the characters. In fact... The ending makes it clear that I don't like any of the characters because I don't like that he was so stupid in the end. And I don't like, I mean, and Nathan, I, you don't like for most of the film. And, you don't and, think. And it's funny because in the moment that you think he's being the most debased human he can be is the moment that I'm like, finally, he's being a human and thinking okay that that point i really appreciate i think that's a very good point you just made that that's the most human he's being yes but i also think it's human for different reasons than you think it's human i think it's human because he's finally just being like oh my god yeah you fucked me i need to sit i need to solve this problem you're going to make it more difficult i need to get you out of the way yeah i think that if Caleb, in any of the interactions he had with Nathan, in any of the times Nathan totally pissed him off the way Caleb just pissed Nathan off, if he ever resorted to violence, then Nathan would be like, oh, haha, so you resort to violence? Like, he would have been superior about that, too. Right, but none of those moments where when death, death was on the line. Right. 
If I'm in a situation where I think you're going to stop me from saving our lives, yes, I'm going to knock you the fuck out. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> because again, I do not think that Nathan is an evil character, which is so interesting because you hate him so much. But I do not think he is evil. No, I don't think he's evil either. I think he I think he genuinely is like, I need to save our asses but because he is, you made a stupid decision. But he is the villain. Yes. Absolutely. And I, I don't think we can blame Caleb for making a stupid decision when Nathan, the entire fucking movie, his whole objective was to get Caleb to make this decision. And the only reason it backfires on him is because Nathan underestimated Caleb. You know what's hilarious It's all Nathan's about fault. It's very similar to Star Wars when he doesn't listen to his superiors and does something and then gets them all fucked. <laughs> I guess. Remember? Because they sure, wouldn't yeah, tell him uh -huh. certain things. Yep. So he went ahead and did them. Yeah, no, they that's like, a good point. Fuck? That's a good point. I'm one of those cucks who loves Last Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good point. Anyway, Ava, I think, and Kyoko teaming up in a way to kill Nathan is the equivalent of Skynet becoming self-aware yes. and killing humanity. Yes. Uh, they are not strictly programmed to kill their creators. And I think it's interesting that Caleb even mentions Oppenheimer, credited with the creation of the bomb, in quotes, and that's exactly what Skynet let loose, which caused the end of humanity. So there's some connections here between these two movies that we have. Of course, there's the visual symbolism, which blah, 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 of Ava leaving the straight lines and long hallways and uh, of the facility into the nature outside. And that's symbolic of her uh, achieving her humanity in that moment. Anyway, my point about how none of the characters are, are great characters and why Kelsey doesn't like this movie, I wrote down manipulation and why Kelsey doesn't like the movie. <laughs> this is my, my uh, psychological analysis of Kelsey. The characters all manipulate each other as the movie manipulates the audience and not in a fun celebratory sort of murder mystery way where the, where the, the where what's really going on is revealed to you and, you're, and it really excites you. It makes you feel <laughs> insignificant. And, and the word I used is like a rube. You look like a rube. If you side with Nathan, you're an asshole. If you side with Ava, you're a murderer of innocent people. And if you side with Caleb, you're a smart idiot who dies. <laughs> and since Kelsey cannot side with any of these, it immediately turns her off. And I do not think that that's unreasonable. It's, it just bums me out. That's all. I think it's a perfectly reasonable reaction to have. It's just a bummer because I really enjoy the movie. Yeah, that is a very good point. Because if there's no character for me to root for... And sometimes, guys, I root for the bad guys. Oftentimes, I find myself rooting for Freddy. The bad guy is the most interesting part. Honestly, I think that's where... We'll talk about this when we get into it. Uh, we're getting to the point in Nightmare where Freddy is the main character now. Yes, Freddy and will become the, the person that you like. It completely changes the dynamic of the franchise, and it's why it goes in a completely different direction. And I think people like the different movies for different reasons exactly because of that. And some people think, and I don't necessarily think that they're wrong, that that's why the franchise is ruined. Mm -hmm. is because you stop rooting for the people to survive and you start rooting for Freddy to kill them. Yes. Yeah, we'll, we'll see that in four. Especially, yeah. Uh -huh. So I've got to have somebody who I'm for. And yeah. there's just nobody who I'm for in this movie. Totally. Totally. 
Yeah. Oh, Jesus, this is going to be a really long episode. We recorded more of this than we did of Terminator. Fantastic. <laughs> the episode might be late. Kelsey, with all of that said, what do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? Oh, I'm sure it's very high. Let's say 90. 92. Ex Machina leans heavier on ideas than effects, but it's still a visually polished piece of work and an uncommonly engaging sci-fi feature, Metacritic of 78. So it has a slightly lower Rotten Tomatoes, but a higher Metacritic than Terminator 2 did. Do you think that's overrated or underrated? Overrated. Of course you do. <laughs> what would you give this movie? It is very good. It is very well put together. The acting is very good. The writing is very good. The music is good. The cinematography is good. I just per have a personal preference against it. Sure. So I am going to give it an 85. That's still pretty damn good. It's a very good movie. Look at I the other movies in our 80s and it is very a it is a very good rating. I just personally don't enjoy it. Yeah. That's that's the thing. I think it's a good movie. Mhm. Mm I'm just not excited to watch it. No, I feel like this movie aside from from what happens to Caleb, it makes me feel bad because I really like Caleb. I think he is the most relatable character, not the not necessarily that other characters aren't understandable, just that he's the most relatable. And the fact that he who is us dies horribly in this because he was manipulated in the same way that the movie manipulated the audience. That makes me feel bad, but it doesn't make me dislike the movie. And so I think 92 is pretty spot on. I'm going to give it a 91. Not as good as Terminator 2. I don't like it as much as Terminator 2, but it is, I think, an incredible achievement. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Writer-director Alex Garland, I don't remember if we actually talked about this or not, but he wrote 28 Days Later, which was... Our first movie. Our, our first episode. It wasn't our first movie. It was right. our first, first episode. episode. Yeah. So but we love that movie. Re really good. But this was his directorial debut. He also wrote and directed Annihilation, which again, I liked and Kelsey did not. Did I did not. not like it as much as I like Ex Machina. Did not like it. It's way too. I, this like, is not. This just is like sound, anything can happen. So how can you appreciate it? Kind of. I mean, like it makes me sound stupid when I say it this way, but it's too high concept. Yeah. To be filmed, like there's just too many things that I'm just like, sure. what, what is even going on? You know. I can I can understand that, and I think the movie relies a lot on you feeling what's going on. Exactly. And so. I think a lot of smug assholes would be like, oh, you don't get it. And it's like, put it into words for me. Exactly. Like, I understood what it was trying to say. And I understand it, it physically, like, actually what was physically happening on screen. Exactly. But yes. It, it wants you to think outside of that. It wants you to yeah. look deeper into it. And I, and I, when it's too high concept to be filmed, then it's no longer a movie. And it was originally a book. And it probably yeah. should have stayed a book. There are things that you need to see in your own mind for it to make sense. And when you see it on film, based on someone else's interpretation, sure. it gets lost in the process. Sure. It reminds me a little bit of Arrival and why I hated that movie. I hated Arrival. I think the content of Arrival was really good until it got to the end. Hated it. 
and it it just ruined the fucking movie. And I I do not understand why people fucking love that movie. I just do not get it. A part of me, a really cynical, assholey part of me, thinks that if you liked Arrival, you're an idiot. And I hate that part about me because absolutely that's not the case. Like in actuality, of course it's not the case. I think when you think about those movies, when you put them all in a row like that, kind of makes the act. Well, the, the Arrival direct- isn't his. Oh, I was going to no, say, no, no, it kind of no. makes the director seem like an asshole. <laughs> yeah, no. He, the first, he's only directed three things and one of it is Ex Machina, the other is Annihilation, and then the other is the Devs TV series. Which I really fucking want to see, and I still haven't seen it. It's supposed to be very good. Okay. So we should probably watch it. But he's written a lot of stuff, and he's written a lot of uh, video games, too. He wrote Sunshine, which we do really, really like, and we will cover on this show. I really enjoy it, but it has a lot of flaws. Especially when you look at it from a from a reviewing perspective, when you're not just sitting down to enjoy the film. Sure. When you pick it apart, a lot of things do fall apart. We are going to watch Sunshine. In fact, I think Jesse Dax. I think that's the Jesse Dax. The next time we have Jesse Dax on the episode, uh, on the show, she has expressed that she really wants to be here for... Event Horizon. Yes, and I really, really want to watch Event Horizon too. And I think Event Horizon and Sunshine go together very well. I don't think she knows that I do not like Event Horizon. But hey, maybe I'll like it more this time. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But I really love Sunshine. It just sucks when you sit down, you actually pick it apart. You find a lot of flaws. He also wrote Dread, which I really like and you haven't seen. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, he, he wrote the um, the script to the Halo movie. So not a video game, but a movie based on the video game. But there's a whole other story about the history of the Halo movie and how convoluted and it's, oh, we're doing it. We're not doing it. We're doing it. We're not doing it. These people have it. No, these people have it. And it's just, will this movie ever fucking get made? (laughs) But right now he has the screenplay for the Halo movie. So we'll see what eventually comes of that. Oh God, this episode is so fucking long. This is going to be another really long episode. Just because I think there was a lot to talk about with Ex Machina and we love T2 so fucking much. And when it becomes those movies that are just so ingrained in us and who we are as film watchers that we end up just spending the most time on them. So that was this week, the Killer Robots week with 1991's Terminator 2 Judgment Day and 2014's Ex Machina Kelsey, what are we watching next week? Okay. Next week is... I'm very excited for it, but I feel like it's a little controversial only because there are so many versions of it. Okay. So... I don't know where she's going with this, by the way. I'm really curious. So, if any of you watched The Haunting of Hill House, the TV show on Netflix... Yes. If you watched that and you loved it, which you should, then... You're probably really excited for next month's release. Oh, the Bly House, the um, the Turning of the Screw. Yes. Okay. So in preparation for that, we are going to watch some versions of that, of the Turning of the Screw. But what you need to know, dear listeners, is there are so many versions of this book. It's a novella, actually. There are so many versions. Um... We are going to pick the best, or from what I've read, the best version um, from the 1960s called The Innocence, which mm-hmm. I have seen. 
It is excellent. I don't. So, I don't remember if I've seen it. Or not. I, I don't think you saw it uh-huh. with me. Um, it is an excellent film, and I'm very excited to go over it. Now that was made in 1961. Okay, the novella was written in like the late 1800s. Okay, they made the 1961 version from 1961 until 2020. There have been so many versions, and I don't feel comfortable giving you guys a number because there are versions that people say, like, that it was inspired by. Oh, it was obviously by, an adaptation right, of it, but not officially. But not officially, yeah, uh-huh. um, et cetera. Oh, right? in this movie, that isn't an adaptation of it. It has elements that are clearly derived from, you know, yeah. So, so you, can't, you can't give many. it an exact number, but there are lots, right? Like, apparently I need to read this novella because apparently it reached a lot of people. Uh-huh. But we are going to watch the the... Everyone, if you look it up on lists, everyone puts the innocence as number one. Uh-huh. So we're going to watch that. And then we're going to watch a version that everyone puts at the bottom of the list. That nobody likes because it's the most recent version. Uh huh. So there is a sort of negative recency bias a lot when it comes to movies. Yes. So we will watch The Innocence from 1961 and we will watch The Turning from 2020, which has Finn Wolfhard in it. Just so you know, he's from Stranger Things. Yes, yes, yes. So we're going to watch those two. Will we ever get to the various versions? Most likely, because we've actually had people recommend different versions. Yes. Jeffrey wanted us to do one of the versions called Presence of Mind, which I've also seen. It's it's on a, a couple of lists as, as a good one. But we won't be watching that this week. We will most likely watch more versions of this later. And you can be damn sure that we're going to be tweeting a lot of stuff while we watch the TV show. Because we loved The Haunting of Hill House and are very excited for the next one. Hopefully it will be as good. And I think it will be. The director has really proven himself. He did yeah. Hush, mm-hmm. which we really liked. So and I think he did something else. Yeah, we also no, he's liked. done a lot of stuff. So Yeah, and I think we'll probably talk more when that show comes out on... Uh, a different project that we're working on. But there is one thing that I want to let you guys know. I already looked it up, and you can't find the innocence anywhere. You have to download it. Really? Which is weird, because I watched it. with Like, within the past year, I've watched it, and it was definitely on, like, Netflix. So there's no other reason why I would have found it. Yeah, you're right. Well, I mean, but those sort of licensing agreements expire. So I imagine it's expired and nobody's relicensed it. They're probably waiting for this to come out, The Haunting And then Hill Netflix House. will release the movie. Or be like, somebody if you else like will. this, you'll watch The Innocence. They're just trying to capitalize on it and just being like, oh, yeah, the best adaptation of Turn of the Screw is The Innocence. And so, you know, whoever owns the rights to it will all of a sudden try to sell it. But I've seen people do that to be like, oh, that'll cause people to go out and buy the Blu-ray, so we'd better not make it available on any streaming services. And that's really fucking weird. At least make it purchasable through, like, iTunes and Amazon and Google and, like, all of those. But, yeah, no, it's not. you're right. It's not available streaming anywhere. Not even if you want to give them money. Yeah. Which is... Ridiculous. Every single production company should digitize their content and make it available for purchase at the very least. We Every piece of agree. content that you have. Because at this point, you're telling me that I have to fucking download yeah, it. Yeah, you're leaving money on the table. I cannot think of one compelling reason not to make it available. I can think of compelling reasons not to make it available through licensing agreements. Mm-hmm. But you might as well make some money rather than no money. Mm-hmm. 
Anyway. Because I can tell you right now, I don't want another physical DVD in my in my possession. Yes. I do not want another one because I already have a fuck ton and Chris cannot convince me to get rid of them. So yes. <laughs> I'm just going to cart those things around with me and I have Until most the of them you die. digitally. <laughs> yeah. So no, I'm not purchasing any more physical copies of things. I When I get my copy of the PS5, I will get the discless version because the entire PS4 generation, I only ever bought one thing on disc and, and only then because the, the store I bought it from broke street date. So it was actually the only way you could get it that day. So other <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't have bought in a single disc for the entire generation. So, yes, we are very much a digital first household. Anyway, Turn of the Screw adaptations, The Innocence from 1961, and The Turning from 2020. That will be next week. Until then, you can always reach us at our website, podcemetery.com, where you can get a list of every movie we've ever covered in alphabetical order with beautiful poster art. That's a great way to uh, browse our backlog. Just look for a movie you like or don't like and then click on the episode. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Pod Cemetery. We often put a lot of stuff, follow-up materials, corrections to the episode, stuff that is only makes sense to share visually that sort of thing. So please do follow us at Pod Cemetery, where we put our afterthoughts. Subscribe to us in your podcatcher of choice. Rate and review. A five-star written review is the best help you can provide us there. Sharing us with your friends is even better than that. And listening in the GD first place is even better than that. Thank you all very much. We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey... Any last words? I swear I won't kill anyone. For the next three minutes, please, <laughs> Mrs. Avery. <laughs> yes. Just gotta talk to her. Keep, Keep her alive. alive. So sad. It's also super melodramatic. I don't care. The apparatus <laughs> is. Uh, okay. Jump, 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 jump. So he, but he can't, can't, everybody else was into Nintendo. And I love when, what is the gun that he picks up? Is this the rocket launcher that he picks up? No, this is the minigun. Okay. That's definitely you. Jump, 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 jump. A series of stimuli that you received over the course of your life that you didn't even register as they registered with you. Hello. What the? It's because you said... Whatever you said sounded like Siri. Oh, okay. That's really funny. <laughs> jump, 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 jump.